VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Tuesday, April the 18th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is producing the program. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone and give us a shout. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26, well, fairly bright day at this moment in time when I got up this morning. Freezing fog was out there, everyone's favorite weather phenomenon. Looks like we might get back to seasonal normal temperatures maybe early next week. At this time, we're usually in and around 10 degrees, but not so much here today. All right, so Dawson Mercer, Alex Nuhu kick off their Stanley Cup quest this evening. Both teams, the Devils and the Avalanche, they've got a pretty good shot. Two quality teams, and so we'll see where they go. Do you cheer for a Canadian team just because? Especially when it gets down closer to the Cup Final. I think a lot of people do. It's been since 1993 since the Canadian team won the Stanley Cup, and of course that was Montreal Canadiens. It's the last team to be uh, composed solely of North American-born players as well, and 1993 was the 100th anniversary of awarding the Stanley Cup to the NHL champion. But are you hoping the Canadian team brings it home? I kind of Anyway, it's also this date in history that the great one, Wayne Gretzky, played his final game as a member of the New York Rangers. They pl- lost to Pittsburgh 2-1. So Gretzky, done in 1999, a fitting date. And good luck to the Caribou Caribou, who are up at the Allen Cup in Dundas, Ontario. Beat Hamilton 4-3 yesterday in their first game of the Allen Cup playdowns. So good luck to them. And the Newfoundland Rogues basketball team, hot when it matters. Five-game win streak. They've got a few days off. Then they head down to the uh, United States for a four-game road trip. So they're looking pretty good okay congratulations to all the locals that participated in yesterday's boston marathon it's a pretty fun watch i mean it's a long race of course and so we had a bunch of locals and some of their families have been sending me updates so bravo to all involved and of course kenyans swept both the men and the women's race yesterday the world record holder is a guy named Iliud kipchoge he, everyone thought he was going to take it yesterday but one of his fellow countrymen a fellow named evans shabet from kenya won the classic stra- part of that race is Heartbreak Hill, of course. And Shabet distanced himself from the rest of them at the, uh, the phenomenal Heartbreak Hill. And another Kenyan, uh, Helen Aubrey, two-time Olympic silver medalist in the 5,000 meter, she won the race as well. Just for some context about how different athletes are these days. So they've been racing in Boston since 1897. And in the second Boston Marathon, of course, in 1898, it was won by a Canadian named Ron McDonald. His winning time was 2.42 flat. Yesterday, the men's winning time was 2.05.54. So you can see and can tell they're getting quicker. Also, interestingly, it was 100 years ago today that Yankee Stadium first opened its doors in the Bronx, of course, home to the New York Yankees. They played there for 86 seasons before moving into the new Yankee Stadium. But on opening day, John Philip Sousa was actually playing the Star Spangled Banner on the, di- on the diamond. Babe Ruth hit a home run as the Yankees beat the Red Sox and, of course, went on to be known as the house that Ruth built or the Cathedral of Baseball. But Yankee Stadium opened up 100 years ago today. Okay. Have you seen the video of the wave crashing over the woman at Cape Spear? It's unbelievable. It's a wonder she's alive to tell the story. So another fellow was there and had his camera out and videotaped it. We, we all know the risks. The warning signs are clear. People have labeled this particular woman a variety of slurs, but one thing she is is absolutely lucky. If you get swept into the water at Cape Spear, 
99.9% chance you're gone. So, you know, Parks Canada has issued a warning, but what do we have to do? Some people possibly don't realize the strength and the unmerciless North Atlantic and what it does if it hauls you off the rocks at Cape Spear. But it's just mind-boggling that anybody would go that close and tease the waves. How many people have we lost like that? So that video was absolutely extraordinary. So Parks Canada, of course, the Parks Canada site has put out the warning. Sticking with some national issues. So the members of the Public Service Alliance of Canada are poised to strike at 12.01 this evening, tomorrow morning. This is a big deal. I mean, in 1991, we saw a major walkout of public sector workers, and it had a pretty crippling effect to government services. Now, there's worries out there about, for instance, some benefits checks, child benefit or seniors benefit. We're told those types of checks will continue to flow. So there's 155,000 members that have voted in favor of this strike. A bunch of them, of course, have been deemed essential, and they'll have to report to work. So there's still going to be somewhere in excess of 100,000 workers, very likely on the picket lines tomorrow. So you know the deal. It's about working conditions, where you work, and the rate of pay. Again, in the minority, I suppose, but the whole remote work issue. There is actually a massive savings available to Canadians and the Canadian government if and when we have less office space required and all the associated costs with operating office space. You know, like if you're working counter service, we want you at work. Of course we do. If you're in your basement uh, doing tax assessments for CRA, as long as the job gets done, I'm not that concerned about it. And yes, there will be some massive savings in commercial real estate if fewer and fewer employees are going to work. Okay. So the conversation, very quickly, and all the leaders were asked about it yesterday, about the potential for back-to-work legislation. You know, the interruption of government services, no one begrudges organized labor to be able to follow through with collective bargaining, and yes, the ability to strike, it's part of how the country's set up. But the questions have been posed. And, of course, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh said he would not support back-to-work legislation. So what would be unlikely bedfellows if the Liberal government decides that they are indeed going to impose some back-to-work legislation, if that ever happens, I don't know what's going to happen. It's remarkable that they'd probably find a dance partner in the Conservative Party. So a lot to keep your eyes on here. And so the issue for those who are working remotely, they're going to have to report to the picket line if they want to get strike pay and have all of their union membership uh, acknowledged. So they, got a, they all have a barcode that they can sign in when they arrive at one of these picket lines. But this is going to be a big deal. I'm surprised people have been talking about this, but unless there's an 11th hour deal, they will indeed be striking as of 12.01 tomorrow morning. Remarkable stuff, really. Anyway, you want to take it on? We can do it. And I'm not proposing that back-to-work legislation is required immediately and get back in the office, you, you know what's. No, it's just going to be part of the natural conversation here. So we'll see where it goes. And if you'd like to take it on, let's do exactly that. Sticking with Ottawa for a moment. You know, I don't think many people begrudge politicians a vacation, right? It'd be nice if we saw more of them and question period actually functioned as it's supposed to. But we know the deal inside of politics. And it's unsavory at the best of times. So now some of the documents that have been revealed regarding the prime minister's family trip to Jamaica over the holiday season. So they went there on Boxing Day and stayed until the 4th of January at a very luxurious estate in Jamaica owned by a fellow named Peter Green. So let's start with the price tag. Look, there's always going to be a whopping big price tag when the Prime Minister takes a, a trip because he has to fly on a government plane. The RCMP, which is a massive bill, adds up in a heartbeat, but the total, the tally was $160,000. 
I mean, when people know that Canadians are struggling, this is just more ammunition for the Conservative Party. So here's break down some of the numbers. $115,000 in costs incurred by the RCMP to ensure the safety of the Prime Minister and his family, of course. $47,000 added to cover the expenses of the Canadian Forces flight crew members and employees at the Privy Council office. So some of those are unavoidable. But here's where it gets tangly. The Prime Minister, the PMO, they went to the Ethics Commissioner for approval prior to their trip. What we don't know is whether or not the Ethics Commissioner was aware of a pretty large donation made by Peter Green and his family to the Trudeau Foundation. So, of course, the Trudeau Foundation is in the news for a variety of reasons. We're happy to talk about it today. What we also don't know is whether or not the Prime Minister uh, reimbursed some of the money that they normally would have to do. So. They will not tell us whether or not the Prime Minister paid for his accommodations or other expenses out of pocket on the trip or whether or not they were covered by Peter Green. Those are important details. And also the way that it's supposed to be handled, and it apparently it did handle it, uh, was handled this way again, is that there's a reimbursement. It's called a regular practice. The Prime Minister reimbursed the equivalent value of a commercial flight for the trip for himself and his family. That's as per the rules. But we don't know if the Ethics Commissioner knew much about the Peter Green donation. Whether or not that's a big deal to you or anyone else, you can let us know. But yes, a trip is fine, but when those price tags add up the way they do, $160,000, you know, Former ethics commissioner, former uh, parliamentary budget officer, says the prime minister has an ethics blind spot. <laughs> yeah, I think he just might. Anyway, that's a big number. What's also a big number is the number of people that made their way to Confederation Building yesterday from all over the province to protest the price for snow crab. Now, again, you might not be directly involved in the fishery, but this is a potential economic bombshell. Not only are they unwilling to fish for 220 a pound, Landed value last year in excess of $750 million. So if it's about a third this year, even though the quota went up by 8.4%, the total allowable catch, so even if it's $250 million, that is a massive impact to people who are the harvesters, their crew, and yes, the plant workers, and everyone who touches some of that $250 million. So this is a big problem regardless of who you are or where you are in the province. Not really sure what the government could or should be doing about it. Certainly any encouragement that can be brought to both sides to get back to the table, see if they can come up with a better price, we'll call it, because even the panel says this is not the right price. But what is the right price? They go on to talk about the rules regarding uh, processors importing crab from other provinces. One plant worker who spoke yesterday, she works in a crab processing plant that imports some product from PEI, and they haven't done that at this point in time this year. My understanding is, and set me straight if I'm wrong to the fish harvesters out there, is they can indeed fish, steam somewhere out to the mainland to offload and sell, but they can't land it here and see it distributed elsewhere. So that is a massive problem, and it's an annual problem. But if you want to talk about this, whether you be a harvester, whether you're in the processing sector, whatever the case may be, let's talk about exactly that. Because, again, you pull $250 million out, and it's obviously a very compressed a crab season, so that's $250 million that would be landed and paid out in very short order. So that's a big deal. Of course, it's a big deal. So is this story. So I think there was a wide round of applause for all sides involved with the pathway to $10 a day for daycare. And again, I don't have children that need daycare, but I do think this is an excellent idea. Affordability is one thing, but access has been obviously a problem, especially for the parents of toddlers. Wait lists are about two years long. And now this story. So some autistic children and their families have been discharged from daycare. 
Why? Because they don't have enough inclusion workers for some children who might need additional support. The ratio of early childhood educators to children at a daycare is one ECE for eight children. But if they need an additional support worker like this inclusion worker and they don't have it, then the daycares have been what they say are discharging the children, which comes with huge implications. So this one family, I'll leave their names out of it, the woman, the mother, she called 100 daycares or day homes, even tried to hire a nanny, flew her mother in for six weeks to try to help as they try to figure this out. So what are their options here? A, one of them has to give up their job, their career that they've worked so hard to uh, have, or they leave. So yes, $10 a day, that sounds like a great thing, but it's simply not working. The infrastructure is not in place to accommodate the numbers of families that need accessible, affordable daycare spots and early childhood education. So another problem that I think can be addressed in pretty short order is to revisit the legislative change that happened back in 2017. So at that moment in time, the regulated child care providers had to upgrade their education to level one, uh, level one childhood educator at minimum. They were given five years to do it. The government uh, provided financial assistance to offset the cost of the course. There was also financial incentives upon uh, graduation. But what we were once able to do is that they could, at one point in time, hire retired teachers, teaching assistants or social work students to be these inclusion workers, as long as they had first aid training and a background check, but they can't do that anymore since the province changed the rules. So while we see the ECE pay grid now retro back to the beginning of the year, that may indeed bring some former early childhood educators back into the fold. It may indeed encourage uh, people looking for work down the line to uh, train as an ECE and get in there to help create the more spaces that we so desperately need here in the province. So can we not simply revisit that 2017 amendment, take it away, so while we are training more and more ECEs and paying them more appropriately, we'll be able to add more inclusion workers so these families are not left high and dry. So that is a big, big problem. Because we know if you're a young family considering where you'd like to set down your roots, options for daycare, affordability and, sex, uh, and accessibility will absolutely be some of the boxes that you're looking to check. So this family, where do they go? Where do they turn? Imagine being presented with that. You have to quit or leave because you have no over for your three-year-old child who happens to be on the spectrum. So anyway, that story is really something. And if any of those families are listening this morning, I would like to call in, share their story and the implications. Let's do exactly that. All right, so after a surge back in November, December for seasonal influenza, it seems to have stabilized, which is a good thing. But now there are stories of a very serious strain of strep A that's circulating. And it's coming with some pretty dire consequences and really shortly after you've been diagnosed with strep. I've had strep before, and it's miserable but fairly easily treated with amoxicillin. You know, it might be days where you're really struggling, like I have in the past, many of you probably the same way, but this strain of strep apparently is really quite dangerous, and if you want to tell us how you're doing, how you're feeling, talk about that, let's go. And also we see now the government has let a contract to Deloitte for the some $2.1 million for an assessment of St. Clair's and for a potential site location for if and when that hospital gets replaced and also for the cardiac care center that's going to be at the Health Sciences Center. So again, on inside of that story, what we don't talk about anymore for some unknown reason is the fact that we're using the P3 as the go-to model for public infrastructure. How are we doing on the telephone, David? Let's get her going. 
We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. And, of course, the topics are entirely up to you. So get one in mind. Pick up the phone. Join us live on the air right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Someone asked a very fundamental question uh, via email during that particular break, and we'll speak to it here now. This is about the whole concept of Jennifer Williams at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro saying that Muskrat Falls is essentially commissioned. And the question, I think, is is a fair one, is if the most recent testing to see whether or not the software was going to trip the system or not at 700 megawatts, and they were successful, which is the good news. But then what's missing there is that if we're talking about 824 megawatt capacity at Muskrat Falls, then does a 700 megawatt test tell the full tale? We are also told that there's a pending 900 megawatt test, which will indeed be the be-all and end-all as to whether or not the software is up to the task. But add to it is that there's apparently a newer version of the software coming, which has all been offered very cavalierly, but I didn't know that that was part of it. And then the other question asked was, do we know much more about the fact that Hydro is still, quote-unquote, hammering out the details of the rate mitigation plan? And that's sort of a potentially a bit of a misleading tag that we put on that particular uh, package as well, but rate mitigation. So we thought, and we were told, it was a done deal. That was it. That was over. And that's the most recent $5.2 billion, $3.2 billion of which were uh, tied to Hibernia royalties. There was a billion-dollar loan and a billion-dollar extension of the federal loan guarantee. There was no thought or concept that that was not a done deal, but now apparently they're still hammering out the details. So for that listener, that's as much as we know at this moment in time. Let's begin on the top of the board on line number one. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. A uh, quick comment on the, on the Muscat Falls fiasco. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is that uh, all the assets in that project are guaranteed an 8.8% return on investment. So on some level, the more money that Hydro spent, Nalcor spent, Demira spent, whoever, the greater the return to Nalcor technically, but, but ultimately and Amira, which is a publicly held company, but also obviously the greater we all have to pay because we're on the hook to pay everything that project costs. Yeah, it's hard to see anything good uh, attached to that at this moment of time for the rate payer because we are the only customers you know, outside of the 20-odd percent that we owe Amera for the uh, construction of the Maritime Link. And the rate mitigation, I suppose I should mention, right now the residential rate is at 12.2 cents, and when this kicks in in full and uh, Muskrat Falls is eventually fully commissioned, the rates begin at 14.7 cents, and then there's an annual increase that's already set in stone, so yeah, for rate pairs. Revenue for Nalcor is fine for Nalcor, but maybe not so much for me and you. Yeah, and the other interesting thing is that somehow magically, I'm not even sure anybody really knows why. Well, someone must know why. Mara now has 59% of the Labrador Island link. They have ownership of that. So that, you know, I'm not, that means that anything they put into that, they're getting 8.8% return on equity, which is not bad when they borrowed money with a federal government guarantee it, I think, either 3.2 or 3.8%, so the spread is pretty good for them. I have no earthly idea why there was ever a need for America to have any equity stake in transmission anywhere on this island or in Labrador like that. None of that makes any sense to me. never has. No, it doesn't. No. Anyway, on to the pending, hopefully it'll be avoided, but the pending, uh, apparently according to Chris Elward, PSAC uh, strike may be starting tonight, whether it's whether it's strategically uh, 
you know, spread out or if it's one big massive walkout, who, who really knows, but we're going to find out hopefully uh, hopefully not tonight. But, you know, I think when we when we step step back and have a look at it and we listen to the words of the union, which has been hammered home, they have control of the messaging, we're hearing radio ads, we're hearing, you know, it's on social media, it's everywhere, that, that they're no different than any, of, than any of us. That's what Chris said last week when he was on your show. And, and I'll, I'll definitely argue that. The Prime Minister said that they were on the front line, that, you know, they were heroes. And I know that there's definitely were people who really stepped up during that time period. But I don't, I think most of them were working from home in their living rooms. And uh, so, I mean, I, I'd like to challenge the Prime Minister and Mr. Elward on the assertion. I mean, we're not comparing them to the nurses, I hope. I mean, I'm sure there were some that were really putting themselves in harm's way, but I think the vast majority of them were not. Um, the other thing, too, is is I, I reflect a lot on on the working from home, which you spoke about already. And, and you know, and, and in theory, for the perfect household, I think that's, you know, that probably is the ideal situation for them. But, you know, I think what's lost in the conversation is the number of people who maybe have addictions, for example, and, and they're working from home. And, and, and not, what impact does that have and whether it's food or pornography or, or alcohol or drugs or could even be, you know, even smoking and social media and things that, that maybe they just can't escape it and they have compulsions. And not, I think that might be lost. Also, distractions. Not everybody has the ideal living room or, or, or sorry, home office that they can go, go away to. You know, what's the impact on from social interaction for some people, collaboration, teamwork, and, and whether they're in an unsafe or abusive home. Yeah, but I, what, how does that, you know, fold into the larger conversation of remote working? You know, because very much unlike 1991, remote working for government employees was just not a thing. So they've got a major lo- logistical hurdle they have to clear here. But for, And I know I'm in the minority, and so be it. But if there's massive government savings to be had for less commercial uh, real estate to be rented or leased and all the costs associated with it, if you're getting your job done, there's all kinds of ways to measure whether or not people are being effective and productive. So if I'm working counter service for Service Canada. We want you at the counter. If you're doing tax assessments for CRA, if the work gets done and you've got a quota, you have to hit whether or not you were sitting in the office right next to the boss or sitting in your home office or at your kitchen table. I'm not so sure I care a whole, much, a whole lot about where they're doing the work as long as they're getting it done. Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point because you're right, there are quotas. And, and obviously we, we hear examples of there was an immigration officer who was totally out to lunch and they don't even know what he was doing or she was doing. They never identified the gender. But the flip side of that is, is I know someone who works in the federal government who has a quota and uh, he, the person repetitively would meet their quota by Tuesday at five o'clock or four thirty, whatever time. And they would go back looking for more work because in the field, like most of these quotas, there's usually a pretty significant backlog. If you take immigration, for example, there's a million, but, because that would make everybody else look bad, that person was told, no, you try and spread that work out, which they weren't able to do because they were able to get through it so quickly because they were f- efficient and productive, which we'd like everybody to be. But remember, that's two days into a five-day week. So that person eventually was compromised that they could just do whatever they wanted for Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, like literally watch movies if they wanted. So, you know, then you go one step up and you think, okay, well, the managers are managing them, but but who's managing the managers? And, and, you know, we're talking about a situation where you've got everybody's living the dream in, in this case. And, and I really, you know, when you look at the fact that with all the technology that Canada has, you would think we'd be able to do the same amount of work with less people. But yet, you know, in the last five years, we have 59,000 more people working. 
And so that obviously draws a straight line with productivity because with all the technology we've implemented in the last five years, you had to think we'd be able to do things with less people. Yeah, I don't think anybody disputes that fact, but of course, I'm not so sure that has a whole lot to do with where they're working, though, either, right? So if I'm in the office and I need to stretch out, which is silly enough to say, with all the money that we spend to operate government, that should never be the case, regardless of where you are sat while doing your work. So they would spread it out over the course of the week, and while they are dilly-dallying or they're daydreaming or they're looking at Facebook on their phone or they're playing solitaire on their computer, the same thing holds for whether or not you're at the office or at home productivity we've we have a canadian problem with that we long have and certainly inside of the public sector you know and not to be unfair but that seems to be part and parcel if you go back having satisfied your your quota for the week uh tuesday afternoon that should never be the case i mean it's just too much on the go and we're spending so much money but i just want to give an update here i just have some job numbers remember when i had minister o'regan on the show there a couple of weeks ago and the conversation was about the 86 percent of jobs that were added uh, as of September last year, we're in the public sector. We do have some additional jobs that I have from two different sources to verify their veracity. Since that article in September, which was in the Financial Post, there's been 311,800 private sector jobs added, 28,000 self-employed jobs, and there's been a drop in the public sector by 3,900, just to throw the accurate numbers out, to which I think is just in the air of fairness. Correct. Now, those numbers are, are national and include provincial government uh, employees as well, because a lot of, you know, it wasn't just the feds who hired all the people, the province did, the municipalities did as well. So the numbers that when they were quoted were, were taken into all of government. Right. That's why I just always ever said public sector as opposed to working for right. Ottawa. Yeah. The feds themselves predict that next year they're going to have 413,000, which, which is, that's with, well, you know, that's eliminating the temporary ones. I mean, I don't exactly know what it is, you know, what it was at its peak. So there were some temps higher, but they're still expecting a 59,000 Grow, you know, person growth, and at the same time, they're expecting in five, in the last five years, and this is, this will be up to next year that that our budget, that what we're our spending is going to go up fifty six percent, so up actually one hundred forty eight billion dollars, and you know the out of control spending leads you know leads to the next thing, which is it isn't just only what employees you know take home, and a lot of times, especially in the public sector, people just look at their take home pay, you know, and and in the case of, but especially with the feds, because their their benefits and pension in particular is so generous. You know, in particular, like if you look at, you look at, uh, so their pension is adjusted to consumer price index, which I know many in the provincial government and the municipal governments would love to have that benefit. But just so everybody knows that that this year, starting January first, all our federal government employees who are on, who are retired got a 6.3 percent raise. That was just automatic. And it's trending right now. Now, obviously, inflation is dropping or the CPI is dropping. But if, if it was based on today, like up to February, the end of February, which is the latest data, they're on track to get a 6.2% raise next year. Yeah, and, you know, it's nice to have an index pension, no question. Uh, last thoughts to you, Tom, before they flag me off to the break. Well, I mean, you know, basically, the pandemic laid bare the fact that that the, the federal government employees in particular live behind like golden gates. And, and, and when they sit there and say they're speaking, they're representing the, all the workers who should be getting the same thing. Well, if, well, first of all, if everybody in, in the country gets, keeps up with consumer price index or inflation, then, then inflation will never go down. That's the first thing. And secondly, they definitely don't represent all the people during the pandemic who lost jobs, lost their businesses, took pay cuts because they all got raises during the pandemic. 
and they're looking to get you know up to 40% raises with this negotiation as they hold the whole country ransom. So I mean, I think we as taxpayers need to expect more from our leadership and that they hold the line with their their 2.08 whatever percent raise. But bear in mind that all the politicians are getting raises. They just got them. They just got them April first. So you know, the hypocrisy and the double standard in the country needs to needs to end. Everyone, stay safe. Take care. Appreciate the time, Tom. Take care. Yeah, all right. Bye bye. All right. Let's go ahead and take a break. It was just a point made by a family that has an autistic child that is unable to go to daycare because that particular setting, and I guess wherever else they've called, don't have an inclusion worker to uh, help. It's also associated with the rate of pay because, you know, these are some pretty difficult tasks. You know, they're taxing jobs. So I know the ECE pay grid has been updated, modernized, and there's more money available because we're talking about some of our most vulnerable. So how we pay home care workers or in a long-term care setting or, yes, in a daycare with very, very, very complex and difficult jobs, rate of pay has to be there so that people are actually interested in becoming one. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. I guess this is Tom morning, is it, Patty? <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> Welcome, Tom, number two. <laughs> Listen, Patty, I, I'm sure you remember the issue down in Kitty Bitty there a little while ago with the bright lights and the and all the issues the residents were having, uh, how frustrated they were trying to get the city to do something. Well, you know, we've had a we've had an abandoned vehicle parked on our lot here at the hub for the last couple of weeks. Broken windshield, unregistered, doors open, and nothing we can do with it. I called the police at the RNC uh, who came up and to see if it was stolen or something, and the officer told me they can't reach the owner based on the license plate. I called the city. Uh, well, that was just saying that if I called, looking to speak to God, as uh, I got no response there. Um, I called the tow truck company and got a lesson in um, the fact that they can't tow any vehicles off of private property because of insurance concerns. So here we are this morning, uh, limited parking as it is, an illegal vehicle on our lot, and not a bloody thing in the world we can do about it. You know, it's just so, so, so frustrating, man. You try and run a business, you try and help people with disabilities, and you look for a little assistance, uh, particularly from the city, uh, which would pass a bylaw that says that vehicles that are parked illegally on private property can be towed without any insurance issues involving uh, the towing companies. You know, that's all I'm asking for. It's just, you know... It's, frustrating yeah i'm just trying to think what the liabilities might be that they'd incur by doing what they always do just tow vehicles like, well sure. i know if you can tow off private property you can tow off the city streets when there's snow issues and things like this but i spoke to this one lady at a towing company for about 15 minutes and she explained to me that if they were to take it in a circumstance without the owner knowing on private property uh, they can assert all kinds of damage that's non-existent. And so they've all, every towing company, have elected not to tow uh, vehicles off of private property uh, because of those concerns. And I appreciate that. Fair I spoke to the lady. I said, I understand that. I understand where you're coming from. Uh, so it has to be addressed either provincially or municipally. Uh, 
so we can get otherwise, you know, every morning I come to work and this vehicle is still there, smashed the windshield, unregistered, sitting on our lot, taking up a spot, uh, you know, when when we're so limited in our parking anyway. Uh, I don't know. I just... Well, I, I mean, obviously, it's quite frustrating. You know, insofar as damages and whatnot go, I suppose if they really wanted to cover their backside, you know, independent photo evidence of what the status or the status of the car is could be part of protecting themselves from these particular liabilities. But I don't even know what it means that the IRNC can't reach the owner of the vehicle. Why, they disappeared? They left the province? or? Uh, my question, you're, you're asking all the same questions. Last time I spoke to the lady, RNC officer, and I said, well, Tow it, take it out of my spot, get rid of it. You know, it's here illegally. We can't do that. You know, man, oh, man, I just, uh, I guess you can tell I'm frustrated because I've been trying to deal with this now ever since the vehicle was there the first morning we came in. And and now I understand why people are doing this, is that you put all these signs up, uh, vehicles will be towed, and it's not worth the sign is printed on. Because nobody will tow it, not the RNC, not the city, not anybody. So, uh, <laughs> you know, if I go and park maybe in, in Danny Brain's driveway and leave my car there, Danny, <laughs> nobody can remove it. That's how silly. That's how silly we're operating the city. And I think it's a municipal issue. I think all the city has to do is pass a bylaw to protect the towing people that says yes, you can tow it. And, yeah, take a picture before you go, and then, you know. Yeah, give it a time frame, you know, if it's still there in seven days or 14, whatever the number people think is appropriate. While we're speaking, there's a business owner uh, close by. (laughs) Anyway, I'll just leave them out of it because they shared this uh, information privately. Had the exact same thing. They contacted the RNC, but they were able to locate the owner, and then the RNC actually came and towed it themselves. So, yeah, yeah. anyway, let's see if they can't find the owner. shouldn't be that complicated. I I know, you know, so I I just put it out there. So maybe somebody can help me or the city Somebody from the city can reach out or somebody can reach out and say, look, you know, this is what you do, you know. Call 103 Rescue Squadron in Gander and say, come and helicopter to the, I don't know, I just, I'm at my wit's end there trying to find out what to do with these things. And it's just crazy. Every time you run into an issue like this, you find that why isn't there a bylaw? Why isn't there something that protects business people or from, from these type of issues? frustrating absolutely uh, it is so i don't know what the solution is maybe a bylaw for added protection for private towing companies fair enough or maybe the rnc should even if they're unable to locate the owner tow it themselves put it on their property to not only free up a space for you and the uh, patrons of the hub but just to yeah. deal with the issue get it settled as opposed to everyone shrugging their shoulders there's nothing we can do exactly and that's what that's the situation we're faced with now everybody's shrugging their shoulders including me saying what am i supposed to do you know uh, another car shows up the next morning, another car shows up the next morning, and, and all of a sudden, none of my customers, my printing customers, got nowhere to park. My, my people that come in for to get their services and things got nowhere to park. My staff got nowhere to park. You know, when does it all end? Yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I'm sorry to sound off to you, Patty, but you seem to be getting the attention of some people, and maybe somebody at City Hall or somebody from the RNC will. They'll be listening and and help us out here because this is getting to the point whereby it's ridiculous. Someone gave me the name of a private towing company that possibly will do it for you and has done it in the past. I'm going to put you on hold. I'll just tell Dave and he'll tell you. I don't want to throw their name out there not knowing what might happen, okay? 
Okay. Thank so, you, sir. You're welcome. Thanks for my call. You're no okay. problem, Tom. I'll put you on hold. Uh, okay. Just okay. There you go. There's Tom. I think he's on hold. Is he, Dave? I'm okay. here. Yeah, I'm still here. Okay. I'll I'll get Dave to call you back. There's something wrong with my hold button. Okay. There you go. Do you have him, David? Just let me whisper to Dave. All right. Let's keep rolling here. Uh, let's go to line number three. Good morning, Todd. You're on the air. Eddie, how are you doing this morning? That's kind. How about you? I'm all right, bye. Good. I'm, uh, I'm calling with a, a, a beat the dead horse uh, phone call this morning. I wanted to pick up on the food prices conversation that's been ongoing for a while and um, circle back a bit to the, uh, the parliamentary hearings where we had the, the leaders of, you know, Mr. Weston and the fellows from Empire and all those guys there. And, and I think that, you know, to say they got let off the hook, I guess, would be, um, you know, uh, putting it lightly. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I think the, the best thing that that Mr. Weston or the best defence he could come up with was that well, our margins haven't changed. Um, you know, and so uh, I guess you know, as someone who operates a small business uh, whose margins have definitely changed, uh, I'm just curious as to why you know people that. Uh, you know, control 50%. I mean, these, these three big companies control something like over 50% of the retail food availability in the country. Um, where is it written that, you know, they're mandated that they, they get a return on their investment and their, their prices, their, their margins can't change. I mean, the, 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 the obscenity of the profit that these guys are raking in on the backs of consumers for basic foodstuffs I mean, it's criminal. I mean, the call a spade a spade. There's, again, no one big grudges a fella making a few bucks. But, uh, I mean, these numbers are astronomical and it's based on, on food. And, 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 and you know, the, 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 the cycle of inflation that we're into now, we're starting to see a little softening of, of the inflationary pressure. But food, price, food prices, food inflation is still going up. So, you know, I, I just wonder when someone somewhere is going to get their head around something has to be done this can't persist and go on I, I racked my brain trying to think about so, some of the ways that this could be handled. And then talk about tone deaf. Shortly after the parliamentary hearings, uh, they gave Galen Weston a $1 million plus dollar raise. I mean, come on, right? It's, it's really quite something. Add to it the complication was just how much power they have, not only as uh, buyers and control of the distributors, because they rule the roost. If they want whatever product at whatever volume, they get it, as opposed to some of the medium and smaller size grocery stores which can add to the comp competitive landscape, which can make it easier when we talk about proximity to one store or another. So they've got us right where they want us. Who gets to be the arbiter of what's acceptable level of profit? Who, you know, I know we can set uh, taxation brackets associated with corporate profits, but I really don't know how we deal with the price of food necessarily. I, I, I wish I did know because we'd be happy to talk about it at great length, but I'm kind of struggling. You know, Government does pick winners and losers sometimes. They have indeed, if you just looked at something as fundamental as the sugar tax, so they do get involved on that front. But how you support cheaper options as government policy or access to healthier foods as part of government policy, I just don't know how that works. Do you have any ideas? Well, and, you know, I mean, and it's a $64 million question, right? But, I mean, you know, obviously having a food system, uh, and, you know, this is global. This is not only Canadian. I mean, food, food is in the hands of 
you know, the world food supply is in the hands of so few people, I mean, uh, is a recipe for disaster. And I mean, and this is what we're seeing happen. You know, the globalization and, and the massive corporatization of, of food and the things, you know, the, the, the food that sustains the people in the world um, is, you know, is going to kill us all. Uh, and, and, you know, it really is something that, I wish I had an answer, but, you know, uh, and, you know, a lot of people that I talk to, like you just said, they go to, well, we got to, you know, tax their profits. Well, you know, I'm not sure that putting more money in the hands of government is necessarily the answer because, uh, you know, what's government going to do? We all know that government doesn't always spend money the way that they should, Uh, you know, but ultimately, uh, like, I just, I think the start of it is that people need to be more vocal about it, not that people aren't talking about it, but, I mean, this is really, you know, getting beyond the pale, uh, you know, the the ability for, you know, and I mean, you talk about, about Mr. Weston, and I mean, you know, everyone loves to throw stones at, at, at Galen Weston, but I mean, you know, him and his family are, are like, are, you know, they're among the richest people in the country and getting richer by the day, and especially in the last few years when the whole world is struggling under a global pandemic and people are wondering how they're going to make ends meet, you know, just because they happen to be in the food business. You know, so it's, uh, you know, I don't think that anybody can can point fingers at, at uh, you know, the great corporate knowledge or the great business savvy of Galen Weston. I mean, if, you're, if your business strategy is just raise the prices continually until someone, you know, stops buying your food, well, when are people going to stop buying food? <laughs> you know, so it's just, you know, you see, there's one thing, Patty, for prices to go up. But, I mean, you know, everybody who goes to the grocery store or anybody who, who you know, sets foot in, in any kind of a food outlet, I mean, it, it, stuff is two and three and four times the price that it was two years ago. And when you see the money going in the pockets of a couple of big companies, that got nothing to do with, you know, farmers' costs. That got nothing to do with, with you know, costs going up. That got to do with people gouging. Same things happening in the in the oil business. It's like, how can people say with one side of their face that, well, you know, costs have gone up and things are difficult and you know we're having a tough time like everyone else, and then at the other side of their mouth announce record corporate profits? I mean, it'd be like, it defies any intelligence that a human being got, and how we accept it and governments accept it. I mean, the dog and pony show of that parliamentary hearing. I mean, talk about a waste of time and money. You know, like like what are you prepared to do? And something has to be done because. You know, it's 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 a it's gonna it's ultimately gonna cost you know the, the the people of the country, the people of the world, in their health and their well-being. That's ultimately gonna cost the government, you know, because the government's then gonna have to take care of people who aren't getting proper diets and can't afford good food and are gonna end up on on healthcare rolls and all that kind of stuff. So I mean, it's a big cycle. And when you're talking about the thing that sustains us and gets us, you know, through this world, for it to be controlled in the way that it is, especially in this country but around the world, and for we people to be able to profiteer off it in the way that they're doing, there has to be an answer. It can't, it can't be a shrug of the shoulders. It just can't. No, I, listen, I agree. I say this all the time. I think shrugging our shoulders, throwing our hands in the air that there's nothing we can do is quite silly and counterproductive. I just wonder on this front, what? I mean, if they started with conversations regarding windfall tax, fair enough. I mean, other countries have imposed windfall tax, especially in the energy sector. But then we have to come up with who gets to be the person that decides what threshold of profit is acceptable versus what falls into the windfall category. Maybe that's where the conversation goes, I suppose. And, and you know, even when I hear from people who are in the industry and they're part of the distributing chain, they don't really have much to offer when I ask them, you know, what can we do, some fundamentals that could help ease the food inflation? And nobody's really coming back with a whole lot in the way uh, 
uh, versus more money in people's pocket. But of course, there's a double-edged sword there. The more money I have, the more affordable food becomes. That doesn't change the price tag on the food. But then, of course, if we're talking about trying to put some controls for overall rates of inflation, just putting more and more money out there, yes, cost of living issues and affordability has been addressed. But then on the other end, we're not doing anything to help the inflationary pressure. So, man, it is just uh, such a messy situation. It is. And I think it boils down to, you know, it boils down to ultimately that these companies and, um, you know, take the three big Canadian grocery companies. But like I said, go globally. I mean, there's all kinds of documentaries out there. Now, you know, pick your documentary because, you know, you never know what you're getting. But but there's some really good ones out there that talk about the global food system and how and how, you know, things work and how it is in the hands of very, very few people. I mean, you know, breaking up these big companies or controlling them in some way, shape or form has to be a way to control prices. I mean, you know, they can do what they want because they're the only game in town. And, and you know, we control prices of lots of things. I mean, talk to a crab fisherman in Newfoundland and Labrador today, talk yeah. about price control. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like we don't do it. We do it, you know, in, in places that we can, but we just don't do it for, you know, for the big boys. And, and you know, the time has come. I mean, I'm getting sick of going to the to the supermarket, to the grocery store. I mean, forget about, you know, you know buying food and trying to, to, to run a, 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 you know, a restaurant business where we try to buy food, value add, and then, you know, make a dollar out of it. I mean, that's impossible in our business now with the prices stuff. I mean, I'm embarrassed at some of the prices we got to put on our menu because, you know, what, what we got to do to make ends meet on top of the cost of the, the basic raw ingredients is, is getting out of whack. And, and you know, like canola oil going from $19 to $50, you know, it's like, what's that based on? Like, you know, like it's a, so, you know, the, the, again, no one expects that everything's going to stay the same price. We all appreciate that that things, you know, uh, inflation is, a, is a, a thing that we live with and, and COVID caused a lot of disruption in this world. But by the jumps, when you see the, these companies making more money than they ever made at a time when the other half of the world is making less money than they ever made, what do people think is happening? I mean, money is just getting siphoned from one part of, of the economy and one group of people and is going in the pockets of, you know, the, the 1%. And, I mean, I'm not a fellow who calls you and goes on about the 1%, Patty. Like, <laughs> fellas want to go out and take a risk and make some money, I'm all for it. But this is really, you know, getting to a point where something needs to be done and governments need to take it seriously. And, and I, I think what I'm getting tired of is just like you said, the shrugs of the shoulders and people going, but there's nothing we can do about it. I mean, we can do stuff about anything. Anything can be done. You know, they came up with a vaccine to, to solve uh, COVID-19 in, in a record time. Everyone said it was going to take 15 years. It took a year and a half. So, you know, stuff can be done. And, and I'm just getting frustrated and tired watching what's going on in this world and, and, and the price that people are paying. You know, and I'm a fellow sitting in the spot where I can afford it. I can't imagine trying to raise a small family and stuff with the price of stuff now. I mean, it's, it's completely, it's impossible. So one, so three fellas in the country can make $25 million a year. I mean, come on. Yeah, it feels quite punitive to go to the grocery store. Uh, I think we all feel the pinch. I'm sure some folks out there, it's no big deal to them, but for the 95-plus percent of us, it is a big deal. Appreciate the time, Todd. Thanks for this. Thanks, Ben. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we go back, Kathleen's to respond to Tom, who's called earlier. That's about the abandoned car, I believe, is it? Okay, Kathleen, after the break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four, Kathleen, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Um, we had the same issue here in our condo building and uh, went through the same uh, frustration as your caller. Actually, uh, we found a uh, salvage company who towed the vehicle because they can use it for salvage for their company. Fair and I enough. I can't tell you what company it was. 
but I'm sure they're listed in the uh, yellow pages, right? Well, that's a helpful suggestion for Tom. We also passed along similar uh, advice to him off air. I didn't want to put a company name out there because I didn't want them to be, you no. know, for instance, if I say the name of a company, they say, what do you do? We don't do stuff like that because of the rules or the regulations or insurance. So I didn't want to, you know, upset the apple cart there. But we did pass along very similar information. Someone also suggested, well, if the city can deal with it, if it's on a city street, just drag it to the corner <laughs> and let the RNC yes. in the city worry about it. Yes, true enough. And, uh, of course, uh, they just dumped it here on our parking lot, and it was there for months, and we couldn't get anything done about it. And it's so terrible because they're taking up a parking space that's used by someone else. So finally, thankfully, one of our uh, condo uh, board members found a solution, (laughs) and it worked. They came and and took the vehicle, and they were able to use it then for parts, so it's to their advantage, right? The vehicles, of course, usually got damage to them, no registration, nothing. People just dumped them to get rid of them to our cost. (laughs) Absolutely. So uh, I have a couple of ideas for companies that I know are in that business, and I'll make a couple of quick, or send a couple of quick emails, see if we can uh, help Tom and the hub out. So hopefully it'll help solve his problem. Thank you, Patty. Thank you, Kathleen. Have a nice day. You Bye-bye. too. Bye bye. Uh, before we get to the news, so I won't give out this person's name again because they send me messages privately. If they wanted to call and express themselves on the air, that would be great. But let me just read this. And this is about local production because, yes, price of food, if we had proximity issues that were addressed and or more and more local food and across the country, a bit more of a control of a supply chain stuff as opposed to how much we actually import. Because remember, if products come from South America or Central America come into the United States, eventually we have a currency uh, issue as well. So that contributes to the price then we see things that are totally out of our control droughts and floods and all the rest and yes the invasion in ukraine so there's a lot of moving parts but let's talk about locally produced food Wolfville, Nova Scotia, has a 5% resale policy in place for farm tables. Markets in Clarenville, Gander, Grand Falls, Windsor have imposed a 75% resale policy. That's only 25% difference at the 100% resale at a grocery store. So obviously that has a massive impact. And he goes on to say, and he's right, free market competition will drive down prices long term. First principles of the original farmer's market. Local food production is, of course, a critical issue. But then when we talk about affordability and access to that food, if for the most part people go to, whether it be Walmart or Costco or one of the large grocery store chains or they go to Coleman's or wherever, it's space on those shelves, which becomes extremely difficult because those companies, of course, own the shelves. They can stock whatever they want to stock. And so for some local product, that becomes a real tricky piece of business to get your product to where people buy in large shop, as opposed to farmer's markets and some resale policy-attached issues. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on whatever topic you're into. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go Line number one. Good morning, Dennis. You're on the air. Morning, Penny. How are you this morning? That's kind. Thank you. How about you? Good. Great. Now that we're headed into summer and a, a relief from the cold and a relief from the cost of heat, it's getting better. Yeah, we're still not at seasonal normal temperatures. Pretty chilly when I got in the rig this morning. It was <laughs> minus two. Generally, when you look at the historical temps, we're usually around 10 or getting approaching around 10. But anyway, we're getting there. Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. Uh, I listened to Tad Farron talk about the gouging at the uh, 
sale of food, supermarkets and so on. And I, I agree with him 100%. And I thought I'd, I'd call and talk about the gouging that people are getting at the gasoline pumps. Sure. Before we get to that, I mean, the grocery stores, look, there's all kinds of issues, whether it be the big companies that supply product to these grocery stores, their control of the distribution leg, uh, and the volumes that they sell. Look, that's all fine and dandy. Their margins are not huge, and the margins haven't changed, but none of that is any cold comfort to the shopping general public. So, yes, we can talk about all the contributing factors, but that doesn't make it any less burdensome or punitive when I go to buy groceries for supper tonight. No, exactly. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, the same thing uh, applies. And it came home to me yesterday when I went in to get gasoline, and I looked at the at the invoice, and uh, I said to myself, the, the HST is there, but all the other taxes weren't. And I do recall many years ago there was a move at the time, and I think it had to do with the HST coming in to make sure that certain taxes were itemized on your bill so that you knew exactly how many or how much you were paying in the way of taxation. And if you look at the base price of a litre of gasoline and then look at the taxes, I mean, you know the taxes. And for many people don't know the taxes and don't realize that after the base price, you got a provincial road tax, you got a federal excise tax, you got what I call the North Atlantic tax, you got the nefarious carbon tax, and then on top of all of that, you got the humiliation of paying a tax on a tax, which is the HST tax. And if you add all of those taxes up on one liter of gasoline, this is where we're headed when it comes, partially where we're headed anyhow, when it comes to the rising gasoline prices. And you wonder why it is that the problems won't bring in legislation to mandate that on any invoice, be it a gasoline or whatever it may be, uh, they do it for the uh, HST. You always know how much you're paying in HST. Well, I think people would be more visibly upset and more demanding of the province if they knew how huge the taxation component is on a litre of gasoline. What taxes don't we know about, though? I mean, it's always helpful to see itemized on your receipt. But, like, for instance, the federal government's uh, excise tax of 10 cents, that hasn't changed since the day it was brought in. I know, but... But I'm talking about the cumulative amount of the tax. I think if people were reminded every time they go to the pump and you take, you look at your your $100 or your $90 and realize that a huge part of that is taxation. Like, you know, I, I think there are a lot of people who, who are not aware of the fact that we still have the North Atlantic tax. Uh, five cents, yeah. Yeah, we still have it, and but now it's gone from memory. And uh, the more people realize how much they're paying in taxes, I think the more they would be likely to call government to account. I mean, knowledge is power. Sure, and that five cents, I think accurately, that five cents goes to Silver Peak, former owners at a come-by chance, not North right. Atlantic. That's my understanding of that five cents. Yeah, you're right. And so, right, and the provincial gas tax, of course, has been brought back. Uh, uh, halved, and that remains in place for at least till the end of this year. And so, what are we paying? We're paying eight cents provincially, ten cents on the excise tax. 
HST, which is charged after the fact, which kind of feels like a bit of a pain in the neck. Even if yeah. we just backed out carbon tax uh, before the HST was applied, it would reduce our bills. So, you know, last year we were paying, what, around $0.09 cents in carbon tax, now around the federal scheme, and that's going to make it much more like $0.17, cents, I think. So, yeah. yeah, and then you put on the HST at the back end, and, yes, the big component of the price of a liter of fuel is tax, no doubt. Yeah, and I really think that a lot of people are, you know, when, when something is there so often in your in your uh, daily existence, you tend to take it for granted and live with it and forget all about it. And but I think if you have a daily reminder of how brutal the taxation is, like you had a you had a young young fella call you yesterday talking about moving back here from Ontario to help out his parents, and in the process he found out how expensive it was to live here, and I, and it is. But you know, <laughs> he didn't mention the cost of housing in in uh, Toronto, for example, uh, and how huge that is. So if you look at the total component, it's not a as dramatic as he indicated yesterday, but he did itemize the fact that on top of everything here, we have this carbon tax. Um, well, the, not the carbon tax here, is but right across Canada. Yeah, so I mean, when we're talking cost of living, it has to incorporate everything, not yeah. just you know the price of food. And I actually did some follow up on that because I was a little bit startled with his assertion that the exact same uh, grocery cart full of groceries at Costco that's a buck, uh, one hundred fifty dollars there is two hundred here. I looked at a bunch of Costco pricing; it's all very, very similar right across the country slightly higher here on some items and i suppose some of that is our, our geographical issue for importation but and you know an access or proximity to some of the massive costco warehouses on the mainland but it's very similar pricing and you're right i mean someone said so you know looking at moving to toronto toronto average price of a detached home is over a million dollars yeah imagine <laughs> The yeah, average price I for home. To, uh, people uh, last summer ran into a lot of people on a regular basis from other parts of the country, and uh, uh, they were talking about the cost of housing. and And I said, you know, you could sell your house in Toronto for a million dollars, and come down here and build a beautiful house for five hundred thousand, and put the other five hundred thousand in the bank, and you could. Well, friend of mine, true story, when we were living in Jasper, Alberta in the 90s, he and his then-fiancé left for Vancouver. They're both graduated from a university. They went into their careers. One of them is an engineer. I can't remember what the other does. Maybe an accountant. And they bought a home. And they bought a home that was not a starter home because they had pretty good jobs. And I believe the numbers he told me is that he bought the home for $550,000 or something-ish. And over the years put in another $100,000 in improvements and renovations. They sold last year for just shy of $6.5 million, banked $6 million, moved back here, living the life of Riley. my age. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and not worried about the price of gas. Not worried about a whole lot. <laughs> but I think, uh, com- coming back to the gas issue, I, I really think the, the government should mandate that from this point on, just like happened years ago, if you're going to charge a tax, it has to be shown on the invoice that this is what you're paying. And and I, it might help. I, I just think people need to be aware of it, and awareness and knowledge is power. And uh, it's a big issue. Uh, it's gouging is gouging, and uh, the more we know how we're being hit, I think the more reactive we'd be. 
Fair enough. Appreciate the time, Doc. One other thing, sure. Betty, on a personal level, just before I go, my nine-year-old grandson left his hockey stick in at the glacier about 10 days ago, and it's a really expensive hockey stick. It's a Bauer agent stick. And if anybody knows where it is or found it, if they'd give me a call here at the house, that'd be great, and he'd be in heaven if he could get it back. Those new sticks, man. Gone are the days for 20 bucks. I get a share with 50 30. Teddy, you know what that stick cost? 250 bucks. Our agent stick. And it cost his parents close down to three hundred dollars. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, one of my boys is still playing, and he just bought a stick, and he thought he had a great deal for two hundred twenty-five bucks. I'm like, oh my god! You uh, remember when you broke? If you broke your stick, you you nailed it together or tacked it together and then taped it. Well, you broke your stick. You brought it home, <laughs> put a plastic blade on it, used for street hockey. Anyhow, buddy, thanks for listening, and uh, maybe people need to get more reactive when it comes to how we're being gouged, not only at the grocery store, but also at the pump. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Freddie. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. Now, there are countries that, you know... There is obviously some relationship between the price of a barrel of oil and the refined products, including gasoline and others. It's not as direct as I think some people think it might be, but... In the energy sector, some countries are absolutely applying the windfall tax to some of these exorbitant profits. You know, inside the grocery store world, I think is maybe a bit of a different uh, conversation regarding margins and what have you. But all of the big players in the oil and gas business, it's record profits across the board. And we are talking huge money. So a windfall tax there. The concern that I hear some people echo is that what happens if some of these big companies that employ thousands and thousands of Canadians, if they thought, you know what, better home for my operations is somewhere where I don't have to uh, sustain that type of windfall tax, even though there's cooperation throughout the G7 for standardizing corporate tax rates, not so much when we talk about whatever a windfall is and whoever gets to determine what that amount is. Uh, let's see here, one more before we get to the break. Let's uh, Line number two, Betty, you're on the air. Hi, Betty. Hi, Patty. How are you? Very well, thank you. How about you? Not too bad. I was out walking yesterday and I picked up uh, some stuff belonging to a gentleman. His whole life license, uh, social insurance number, his insurance cards, everything. And I couldn't get a hold of him. I couldn't get him. His, uh, his name is Larry, Gre- Larry Edgar Gray. Okay. He lives at 2 Cherry Bar Crescent. Okay. We, okay. So... Uh, if someone knows Larry or if Larry's listening, we know where your wallet yeah. is. Betty, so do you want to give out your number or just leave it with David? What would you like to do? Yeah, I'll leave it with David. Okay, thanks for this. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye, Bye, Betty. Uh, yeah, good people out there willing to return the wallet and all the stuff inside. It's one thing if you lose your cash. Quite another when we talk about trying to go through replacing and cancelling credit cards and debit cards and licenses and social insurance cards and up and down the line. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the president of the FFAW Unifor. That's Greg Pretty. Good morning, Greg. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? That's kind. How about you? Good. Good, good. So, obviously, there was a lot of emotion, and huge numbers made their way to Confederation Building yesterday to protest. And certainly, this is about the price of snow crab set at 220 a pound. What exactly are you asking the government to do here? Well, there's a number of things, Patty. First of all, uh, I want to start off by saying we counted and we had uh, several sources uh, 
told us that there was probably between 900 and 1,000 people there, and that's probably accurate. I got to, I got to about eight 850 plus. So it was a great turnout, very bad weather in the morning. Uh, we have had a couple of snow squalls, but uh, we got through it. And, of course, when, when we left, the sun broke out. But the, well, the purpose of the protest was, was um, there was a couple of reasons for that. Number one was to, to, to shine a light on, on what's happened on that uh, the price panel and the 220 issue. Number two was to, you know, there are MHAs, government MHAs there that live, that represent people in this, these communities. And I don't think they've really grasped what the issue is here. You know, nobody got into this price panel issue to play Russian roulette with the economy. In other words, you know, you put the bullet in, spin the barrel, and then whoever uh, wins is out of of business. Nobody got into this for that. So that's a pretty serious thing. I think, as as you said earlier in your show today, it's an economic bombshell for the province. So we wanted to talk about that. We had uh, harvesters very passionate on what it is, even larger boats, you know, to spend that kind of money on fuel, and, and wind up without an income. As one person said to me, one harvester said to me a number of weeks ago, I'd, I'd prefer to go bankrupt tied onto the wharf than fish for 220 because that's what's going to happen. So so back to the province issue. So we've asked for meetings with, with the province on this because the province has a responsibility. They control the Department of Labor. They control uh, the, the licensing issues on these uh, crab plants. So on one hand, you have seven or eight uh, crab companies, and and on the other side, you have about eight thousand uh, harvesters and, and uh, plant workers that are involved in in that fishery, plus the infrastructure, plus the truck drivers, carton makers, and the rest. So it's a little out of balance. So we wanted to restore some of that. So what can the province do? Well, one of the things they can do is look at this licensing issue, uh, and and moving forward. We need to do a better job on, on marketing crab. We need to do a better job on processing crab. It's the best fishery in the world. We can be doing a lot better on that. And number two, as I said, the panel issues. Panel is obviously broken. We've had people, harvesters, plant workers say, you know, it's not working for us anymore. You know, you need, we just had a, 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 an examination of it and we made some changes, but you know, many harvesters will tell you it's actually worse now than it was uh, last year. So we needed that, and we we have to have we have to have the people who are actually in control of the province know what this hit is going to look like. And I'll just finish off by saying, you know, we're going to have bankruptcies on harvesters in this in this province this year, and we want to talk to the province about that. I mean, we've had I remember I'm, I'm old enough to remember when we had loan boards for harvesters here. And we probably need something very similar right now because I can tell you right now that we cannot have harvesters go bankrupt because of, of uh, the panel's 220 decision. So, so there's where it is. That's the light we wanted to shine yesterday at the Confederation Building. But it's also for the general public to see how serious these these economic uh, issues are for the province. Because even if we're talking about a third of the price, we're still somewhere in the neighborhood of $250 million of value that might not be uh, executed this year, which is something else. The price-setting panel, you know, it sometimes just feels like smoke and mirrors to me. So you've got a representative of the harvesters, representative of the processors, not officially, but yes, they are, and then one other so-called hopeful independent, and they pick one price or the other. So we're never going to get it right. The price-setting panel said as much this year, that is not the right price. What are harvesters telling you about what price it will take for the boats to be on the water and execute this fishery? 
Well, the immediate message we got uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago was 350. Uh, and then we had we had people saying 310. Uh, and by the way, on that, Patty, uh, great news yesterday. I'll send you a copy of, uh, if you want. Uh, Quebec, uh, Superior Court of Quebec, on Quebec North Shore, uh, a court decision yesterday gave uh, harvesters $3.10 uh, for crab for 10 days. Imagine, I wonder where that came from. Yeah. Well, you know, the issue was, obviously, they looked at the markets the same as we did, and they, they probably landed in that same sweet spot, and the courts agreed. So that's something else I want to talk to the province about. But, you know, here's the issue for us. We have a bargaining committee in place. We have small vessels, medium, large vessels, well represented. And, you know, I, I trust that, that committee. They, they're the guys that have the economics of this fishery down pat. They know what they can fish for. So at, at some point, if, if we can get this thing started again, I, I'm, I'm quite uh, happy to uh, to have that uh, crab bargaining committee examine everything that we can do uh, and arrive at a price. So, you know, and that looks like it's going to be a couple of weeks out right now. Help. There's one comment that you've made that I'm trying to understand exactly what you mean, and that's about cost of operations. So you say there's no consideration given to just how much it costs for a harvester to operate, regardless of the size of the vessel that uh, he or she has. But how does a price reflect that because isn't the price solely about what the market can bear versus how much it costs to execute the fishery if i own a 65 footer or 39 11 that, that is true that is true but the economics of the fisheries were built on is built on uh the, the current practices what you've seen here is an absolute collapse of of that market uh, just like you said uh, given on face value right now between the 220 where we were last year, it's a half a billion dollars uh, uh, out of the economy. That's an incredible hit. Uh, these are prime producers. This country has a record of helping prime producers. What, and the, the clearest example, the most immediate one, are, are farmers. Uh, the, the government helps out there. And we're going to have to look at the same thing because this is, is really uh, a collapse. So when somebody says to me, I can't hire crew on 220. I can't pay my fuel on 220. Ah, I understand. I got you. Because that doesn't generate enough cash for anything. There's one thing to see a marginal decrease in the market that we could have, you know, we've, we've been used to over the years where it'd be going from four to five or six or 650 or, or less. But just to go from 765 down to 220. That's a torpedo in your in the economic engine room in this province, and it's it's going to hurt for a long time. What are they paying for crab in other provinces? Well, as I just said, Quick North Shore now is, is three ten, and uh, in the Gulf area where a lot of them are not unionized, uh, there's a there seems to be a base price of two twenty five, and everything in between, and we're not going to get um, exactly uh, uh, accurate. Uh, tallies on what they're being paid because a lot like in some sectors in this province uh it's a base price and uh and by the way some of these com some of these harvesters just like newfoundland and labrador have um have uh, their own plants and they can pay exactly what they want but the interesting thing in the gulf is that as of yesterday that uh, superior court decision gives it 310 on the quebec north shore okay. which is going to impact 
uh, you know, Newfoundland at some point. And at some point, that'll have impact on access to market because the market is not what it once was. I have two questions remaining. One yeah. is, we'll get to the market last, but sure. let's talk about some of the comments made by one of the protesters yesterday uh, from the processing side, or pardon me, the harvesting side, and the implications for the processors about importing product. The, I think it was Doretta spoke, and she works at a plant where they bring in product from yeah. PEI. They haven't done so this year. Uh, I think there's going to be an opportunity, and hopefully the Premier gets involved in this one because this is a legislative issue is you can indeed steam across the Gulf, and correct me if and when I'm wrong, yeah. you can steam across the Gulf and sell your product. You just can't land yeah. it here and truck it out or land it yeah. here and have it on another vessel so you can cost share for larger transport. So what's the solution there? Is it as fundamental? Because we do have to strike some sort of balance to protect the harvester and the processors because there's jobs that would be lost if the processing sector goes by the wayside or gets diminished. So what exactly is the importation distribution issue? Well, as you just outlined, uh, it's really an issue of, of corporate concentration here. Uh, so there, there there are regulations that say, you know, guys can steam to Sydney, PEI with the product in Quebec North Shore, not a problem. But you can't bring a processor in unless you have permission from the province. So that's that's an issue. That's, a, that's an older issue. But as you know, uh, we've had a, a campaign on corporate concentration. We, we think there's a better way to do business in this province. For, uh, on 119 million uh, pounds of crab, we can do a lot better, uh, whether it be processing, duration of seasons, uh, actual uh, 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 financial gain, and, and, uh, and the economic sharing of, of that. Uh, look, harvesters are saying to yesterday. They said to me yesterday, "How can how can seven or eight processors have that much control uh, in, in this province, where they can take the cream off of everything and and just leave us here flat footed?" So those are licensing issues, and I, that's a longer term issue. But I certainly want to talk to the province on that because that's something. That's something. And here's why. Here's why in a nutshell, Patty. The issue of you know, to whom much is given, much is expected, right? So you get a crab license in the province. It's it's a, it's a very lucrative uh, license. You can make a lot of money on it. But when you get a license, you should have – that should be tied to something. You shouldn't be able to destroy a town with it. You shouldn't be able to just take the cream off and have people on uh, – on make work programs. So there's a better way to do the licensing system too. And that's a part of that process you just talked about. Because if people are not not willing to to do the right thing with those licenses and provide employment, for example, and, and provide uh, incomes and, and duration of season, then, you know, maybe somebody else wants to license. So let, let's get that out there. So I, I quite agree with you. Last one, and this is about market. So, you know, one of the biggest losses when FBI went by the wayside is we didn't capture the steam that the marketing division had. Huge loss. Yeah. The prime market, my understanding is, for snow crab is the United States. There's lots of implications, people say, with Russian crab flooding the Japanese market and no sanctions in place, what have you. Maybe some 30%-ish of the snow crab remains in cold storage. Do we know how much snow crab is still around from last year? And where is the prime market? Well, the prime market is the United States. Uh, how, much is, uh, how much is left in the inventory? I can only tell you what uh, our intel tells us. And that is that it's moving fast. It's moving at low prices, lower prices. But it has been moving fairly well. Uh, last week, uh, we get the updates on Tuesday and Thursday. Last week, the market was flat, which means there was no further dip. Uh, it didn't go down anymore. 
And uh, with the new crab going into from the Gulf going into the United States, uh, hopefully this week, we should see a bump in that market. But the bulk of it right now is five to eight uh, ounce sections going into the United States. Japan could play a, a greater role, no, no question about that. Uh, but we'll see how that uh, how that turns out. There are, uh, without getting going down that rabbit hole um, on the Japan issue, there are treaties with Russia, mm-hmm. uh, long term treaties. They're neighbors. They fish in the same waters. Uh, that's a pretty complicated uh, trading uh, experience here. That is not as cut and dried as some people would 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 think. But ultimately, uh, Russian crab is a, a little bit too too briny and has to be uh, treated the second time. Our our product is much more preferable for the Japanese market, and they may need a little push to start buying some more. But ultimately, that would be a part of a greater marketing plan. Appreciate the time this morning, Greg. Uh, keep us in the loop. I know Minister Bragg spoke to the group gathered at Confederation Building yesterday. Do you have plans to speak with the Premier? Well, you know, I've asked for a meeting with the Premier. I've, uh, I didn't get it. Uh, I got a phone call, and I appreciate the phone call. I don't understand he's, he's busy. But, you know, these the things I talked to you about today, uh, that's my agenda uh, with, with the Premier. And I, I, uh, we need to have that meeting, and we need to have it uh, fairly quickly. So, uh, by the way, thanks. Thanks for the time today. Anytime, uh, give me a call. Thanks, Greg. Cheers. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. It's Greg Pretty. He's the president at the FFAW. Let's take a break. Uh, we mentioned off the top of the show the stories that we're hearing about families of autistic children that are unable to keep them in daycare. The story goes that the daycare operators don't have an inclusion worker for the some of these autistic children or children who are on the spectrum who may indeed some, need some additional support. So Leah Farrell, she's an advocacy manager with the Autism Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. She's coming up after the break. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1pm as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Advocacy Manager with Autism Society. That's Leah Farrell. Good morning, Leah. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me today. Happy to do it. You know, let's start with the daycare-related issue. So, you know, it's all bad enough we hear from families that can't find a space for their toddler. The wait lists are two years long in some centers, what have you. But it comes across as a much different and a troubling story when we hear the parents of uh, children who are on the spectrum being discharged from daycare. What did you think when you first heard the story? Yes, Patty, it's definitely an issue. And, and we understand that there is a crisis for child care in general in our province. But what we're seeing and what we're hearing from families in our province is that it is really impacting autistic kids, families of autistic kids um, at a greater, greater rate. And so we're having families that are in crisis, families that are having to quit their jobs because they're unable to access um, child care. We're having families that are being forced to move away. Um, we're losing you know, professionals. We're losing families to other provinces because they're not able to access child care. What, what do we know about the training, the specific training that an inclusion worker would get? Well, you know, I can't I can't speak to all of the details of that, but what I've what I've been gathering from conversations with families as well as conversations with daycares and as well as government officials is that there was a shift in in ensuring that there was um more training that went into being an inclusion worker. Um, you know, and I I really want to point out that, you know, 
inclusion and accommodations don't need to be looked at as difficult. Um, yes, of course, our kiddos definitely need support, and some some kids may need more support than others. Maybe they're autistic, maybe they're not. Um, and so, I really want to point out that accommodations and in, in daycares don't need to be a difficult thing. You know, it could be a shift in environment, it could be communication strategies, it could be basic understanding of neurodiversity, and that could create a more inclusive space in daycares, in school, and then obviously in our community as well. Let's see if I can frame this question the way I'm intending it to come out. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you meet someone on the spectrum, the spectrum is so wide, so diverse. The impact of autism is very different for almost every single person. What kind of challenges does that pose for the appropriate level of training to be a support worker, to be an inclusion worker? Because you can go from nonverbal and some profound impacts to maybe just some sensory, sensory uh, uh, concerns. So... What does that mean for how we approach not only the conversation and the understanding of neurodiversity, but to train up a worker? Well, what it comes down to, obviously, every autistic individual is an individual. They have, everybody has different needs. And so it's really, equity really is meeting the person where they're at and creating the supports that they need. So, you know, making sure that people understand what um, different behaviors can come from not accommodating an individual in a daycare. So if a child is not given, is, is not accommodated in their sensory issues, a behavior may come, come about. So it's understanding where that child is, what the, what the foundation issue is and then going from there but when it comes to training um, you know individual inclusion workers ultimately it's a it's that basic understanding of neurodiversity and that does need to go into education that education piece I also try to incorporate the solution part of these conversations so you know for some some short-term issues are going to be very difficult to deal with the province can rejig a pay grid for early childhood educators maybe reverse some of the decisions made legislatively in 2017 about the ability to hire uh, retired teachers teaching assistants social work students as long as they have first aid and a criminal background check they can work as these inclusion workers which I think could be part of the short-term solution. Do you have anything to add to that where we can make things better, quicker? Well, I, I think that's definitely something to look into. You know, I have I have three children, and I have one child who's autistic, and right now he does have a student assistant at school. And so I think it's it's could, we could open that conversation and look into that and to see that, you know, may, maybe they don't need early childhood education. Maybe they, they do have a specific background in, you know, X, Y, and Z experiences, and then they can bring that into, into the daycare. Um, that's definitely something that we can look into and, and, you know, as the Autism Society, as the advocacy manager there, what we want to do, what I want to do is be a part of these conversations. We want to hear from families to see what they feel could uh, really impact their families and allow their children to get back in daycare. Um, you know, and I think it's just real true inclusion allows autistic children to access our community and so we really need to listen to our community to the people that are being um, impacted by this which is autistics and neurodiverse um, people and really listen to what they're saying and then create from there and so we we are really open to being a part of that conversation and moving forward with solutions i know you don't operate a daycare but what advice are you able to give families as the advocate you know, we've we, we 
ultimately what we do is we work to educate and share knowledge when it comes to autism and neurodiversity. So we are willing to go into daycares and and educate based on that um, to discuss um, the needs that may arise when a child, autistic child is in a daycare. So we're really open to that. So we're open to those conversations with daycares and with families. Um, but really, honestly, like families feel like they're at their, their wit's end and they don't really know where to turn. And so we're there to support them and create conversations and then advocate, you know, in 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 uh, arenas like this where we can really kind of point out what the issues are um, and, sh- and shed light on this because I feel that the general community may not fully understand how this really impacts autistic individuals from childhood then into as they get older and how that impacts our community in general. You know, it's the more um, accommodations that can be made in, in a universal design, you know, it's good for everybody. It's good for our autistic kids. It's good for our community in general. So this is a really important topic, um, not only for the autistic community, but for our community in general. Uh, last one. So the lady or the family that's uh, talked about in the news story I read this morning, they say that their son, now three, was in daycare last year without an inclusion worker, which kind of jumped off the page uh, to me. Is there any thought that this might be simply because the child is autistic versus the fact that they don't have an inclusion worker? Because I don't know how much things would have changed between the age of two and three for this one child. Didn't need an inclusion worker last year, but now apparently needs one this year, and that's the rationale behind their discharge. Does that speak anything untoward to you? Well, it's it's an important point because not all autistic individuals need, you know, a support worker. Um, it, like I mentioned earlier, it could be a shift in environment or things like that. But unfortunately, what we are seeing with these staff shortages that are being talked about, it seems as though families and children in our the autism community are definitely being impacted more. You know, I'm I'm not aware of any families of of uh, neurotypical children who have been asked not to return to a their daycare. Here, uh, because of staff shortages. So I definitely think that's a point that we all need to really dig into more to ensure that there is equity and inclusion. You know, we talk about equity and inclusion in the workplace, which is extremely important. We also need to really look at how um, we can bring that into daycares and school settings for our children so that they can grow and develop and have all the opportunities um, that, that they have the right to. Appreciate the time this morning, Leah. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Patty, for having me on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Leah Farrell. She's the Advocacy Manager with the Autism Society. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to tell you about an opportunity to cut a rug and enjoy one of Newfoundland Labrador's great bands. That's the Navigators. Arthur O'Brien, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Arthur O'Brien. You're on the air. Arthur O'Brien. Is he there, Dave? Does that pot up? Arthur on one? Let's put him on hold. We'll come back to him now in a second. Let's go to three. Vic, you're on the air. Well, good morning, Patty. You're listening to the audience. How morning. are you this morning? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Very well, thank you. Uh, you had a lady on with you in the fishery on Friday, I believe. They, um, I think she was really probably in, uh, advocating that they'd have some sort of, I guess, financial uh, assistance with a fisherman. Uh, my view is this is a federal, federal, uh, uh, um, I guess, uh, matter. Our fishery; they're in, they're in control of our fishery. So I, I understand the markets are not there, or they have too much 
I think, uh, from last year, I understand. That's and right. But there's sort of a joint management of the fishery between the province and the federal government. It's not entirely in every single moving part up to DFO, but it, it, I get your point. It is a joint management. Is well, I, well, it's still, I suppose, a joint management. But I, I say I'm not very clear on just what the issues are. But I feel that certainly the federal government now should step in and provide some financial assistance until they get this matter cleared up or uh, get new markets, etc. Uh, so we cannot. I mean, those fishermen obviously have uh, very expensive uh, boats to maintain, and of course. Um, if they're paying, uh, I guess, mortgage on those boats or what have you. So really, uh, I can't see, you know, those people surviving on two, I think, two twenty an hour, is it? No, it's two dollars and twenty cents a pound. Two, I'm sorry, yes, a pound. The, that's right. Two dollars. The issue is pound. pretty complicated. I mean, there's a. It has a sense of gambling attached to it, doesn't it? Because with a very lucrative price last year and maybe people investing or upgrading thinking that it would be the exact same this year, when in fact the market has fluctuated and the stock fluctuates. It was only five or six years ago that the stock itself was in really serious trouble. So it's always a moving target and hard to know what the market's going to be able to bear this year, let alone what it's going to be able to bear next year. So, so is there, But is there room for a new market looking at other parts of the world? You know, is that, uh, could, you know, that must be a problem. Can't they try to find a new market in other parts of the world? Sure, but I don't think it's a matter of they're not willing to look for a place to sell their product because, you know, the processors will already have contracts and agreements and arrangements in place for buyers. I mean, they've long had the very same customers or very similar customers. Some faces may change, but the market's probably not a whole lot. Is there more opportunity to sell, for instance, in the UK? I don't know, and I don't think anyone would care where it's sold as long as it's sold for top dollar. Uh, yes, I, yes, I, yes. I, it's, it's complicated. I know it's uh, uh, for me, but I, I, I recall when I was, I think, a young boy. Maybe personal. I think I was five or six years old. The fishermen were complaining then about, you know, uh, not enough money for the catch, etc. Of course, they had the also the barter system then, of course, and of course the merchants. But uh, it seems like the, the, the problems still exist. The fishermen still are short chains in terms of what they, you know, the certainly the, the uh, harvesters are not being uh, actually. And we need the harvesters, of course, they're the, the frontline people. So uh, I, I again I say the federal government should step in there and see what they can do. Uh, we can't have our fishermen losing their boats, etc. The other point I had, I, I know this lady was on there. I don't know her, but I've heard her on a few times. They have Leah Farrell, the advocate for um, the, uh, uh, I guess, the uh, daycare for the, uh, the autism, aut society. autism, yes. Uh, autism. Now, I'm not an expert on anything, actually, but I still read when I get a chance. But I read a book there on autism there, I think, uh, I think it was a few years ago. Of course, I'm, I was totally uh, at a loss as just what, I guess, uh, it, you know, it, it, it really what it means. So it seems like, as you indicated, I think, earlier, the... Um, 
there's some children that have autism, of course, that are geniuses and they do quite well in society, and there's some are not. But I noticed again, now she mentioned uh, in- inclusion, I think, uh, assistants or something, or, or helpers. I'm not going to say, I'm not, uh, of course, up on that, uh, what she's talking about in terms, but uh, it seems to me again, uh, we have, we need a, uh, uh, there's a great need for people to be educated in uh, caring for autism uh, children. Uh, I, I'm aware that now some of those people have, I think it's a two-year diploma in youth and family services in, in different colleges here in Atlantic Canada, and I, I think it's given to probably maybe that are uh, at, uh, I guess, our, what school is that here, the uh, uh probably trade school or what they call but anyway but it seems like again the the, the people in that uh, that have diplomas are well educated and and to deal with those children they're not well paid they're not well paid this is my concern and uh, uh, again we had and and of course I I thought she said about uh, she mentioned about probably bringing people in probably that was uh, less qualified but that would be I think uh, not a good move I think those people should be highly qualified. Yeah, they're not talking about bringing in less qualified people. There was a change made via legislation in 2017 about who could and could not work in these settings. So that excludes some people who are absolutely be uh, uh, absolutely be up to the task, whether it be retired teachers, teaching assistants, social work students, if they have the uh, appropriate level of training and a, a criminal background check and first aid. There's right. no reason why we can't add to the workforce in short right. order by dealing with that. Just that one amendment. But it seems like, though, are, are people really trained in, in dealing with autism? Even even if they were so, uh, from my knowledge, uh, I don't think autism is really, it's a new, sort of a new subject, and I don't think it's included in social work uh, programs or certainly at the Memorial University or what I can see. So really, uh, if you have a, if you are in those field, even nursing, uh, unless you unless you're trained in autism, it seems it seems a very complex. Uh, of course, it is, and it's not know, just a. All right. And we need okay. so obviously they need more training people in that field, but certainly the 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 pay is ridiculous for those qualified people. It is. I appreciate the time. Thanks Thank for this, Vic. Thank you. Take bye care. Bye bye. One issue that we've heard a couple of times is you know government has to be there for the industry at this time. And Greg Pretty makes an interesting point. You know, there has been instances in the past where the federal government has offered aid to fish harvesters. Remember some years back where sea ice was keeping them from executing one fishery or another, and some support came, and season extension and what have you. But when he says farmers get some support, he's not wrong. He's just not wrong. When there's been flooding, whether there's been extended droughts, so access to seed programs and lime programs, and some, yes, some financial supports for the industry when they went through some of these uh, things that are kind of out of their control. Now, does that directly equate to what the market could bear for the price of snow crab? Maybe not exactly, but they are not wrong in saying there's other industries, notably if we're talking about food, farmers have got support. I'm not begrudging farmer any support. In fact, I talk about farming and the, uh, the, the uh, options for adding to food production in this province all the time. So what do you think of that? Because that's one thing that I think was a very key point being made. Uh, very quickly on the uh, issue regarding food, and Galen Weston was mentioned by Todd Perrin earlier. He's going to be replaced as the president and the CEO of Loblaws. 
He's leaving those positions. Now, of course, he will remain the chairman of the company, but Galen Weston out as the president and the CEO of Loblaws. What that means for the price of tea? Probably nothing. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's try this again. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to one of the front men of the Navigators. That's Arthur O'Brien. Arthur, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and uh, thanks for thanks for calling. Uh, thanks for uh, taking my call this morning. I'm uh, sorry to you and your listeners for the for the fire alarm going off in the cabin here today. Oh, no worries there, Arthur. So let's get to it. You're on the Bay Bulls Cove tour, your most recent record. Before we get to where you're going, what you're doing, tell us the story of the new onstage feature uh, at a Navigator show with a Honda Fifty. Yes. Um, well, we have one of the songs on the record is a song we, we do called "My Little Honda 50. And uh, in an effort to kind of highlight the song and promote the tour, we kind of put out the word to some different people uh, to, to support the tour. And one of them was Honda Town in Carbonair. And um, my buddy Percy called me up and said, "Well, you know, we got a Honda 50 here. You might want to we'll give you the tip to use." And uh, so we got the Honda 50, and uh, yeah, we've been bringing it to shows, and we have a little contest going on. Get your picture taken with the bike, and you can uh, win win some prizes from our sponsors and stuff. And uh, it's been uh, nothing but a fun, a fun, uh, fun thing to do. And it's it's funny because it's going to be the most. most set on Honda 50, I think, in Newfoundland for the whole, whole year, I think. And they were super popular bikes, and you couldn't beat them up. No, no. The, I mean, I looked at some of the old ones online, like from the 80s, are going for, you know, still over $1,000. I mean, they're, 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 they're still, and they're very sought after even now to this day. And, uh, you know, nothing against the new ones, but even to those old ones, you know, something that's 40 years old is still, you know, they're still running. So, you know, they're obviously goes to the quality of the bike. Yeah. Give me one of those black banana seat uh, semi-automatic Honda 70s. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I got the little, the new the new one home, and my my youngest he's eleven, and uh, he's never been on a dirt bike, and uh, he he got his first run on one, and he's like, Dad, you can't sell this, you can't get rid of this. I want this bike. Oh, they're fun. It's addictive once you get on a dirt bike for the first time. Uh, Arthur, tell us about the records. We actually had a call from uh, one of your fans uh, that saw your show in Bay Bulls, uh, praising it up up and down the line for the you know, the entertainment value, the caliber of the music. Tell us about the record, Bay Bulls Cove. Well, I would like to thank that fan. Uh, thank you so much. Um, it, it's a new, our, our fourth record, and uh, it's, I think we, we, we uh, of all the records we've done, I think it's probably the strongest, and uh, it's really representative of of the band as as it is these days. And uh, you know, I wrote a lot of the songs on it, and it's it's you know still a mix of of I guess original songs and and some you know traditional favorites. But uh, it's really, you know, it Babel's Cove. I mean, Freddie, as your listeners know, is from down in the Bjorn Peninsula from a town called Bulls Cove. And uh, as your, your caller called in, I'm from Babel. So we put the two the two towns together, and we call the album after our two hometowns, Babel's Cove, which uh, it's a bit of fun. Like, either way I say, either way, either way you look at it, there's there's a bit of, there's always a bit of bull on our record, lots of bull on our record. <laughs> I'll leave that one alone. Yeah, yeah. So pretty extensive tour going on. The next show, I think, is tomorrow up in St. Anthony, and then you're making your way across the province, Rocky Harbor, Cornerbrook, up and down the line. So you're really bringing this far and wide to the folks. Yeah, it was, it's the, it's the, you know, not only the Babel's Cove tour, it's also Stay Where You're At, so we'll come where you're to tour, because, uh, 
Yeah, we're trying to get it to all the little nooks and crannies that we can find. So yeah, tomorrow's a, a nice long drive from from uh, well, the guys are coming in today. I'm actually on the west coast now the last few days, but the rest of the band is driving in today, and then we we head up the coast tomorrow. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to getting back to St. Anthony and then Rocky Harbour and some of these places that uh, you know they're little smaller places, but you know it, it, you know and especially this time of year, it, it's a little different. Like Rocky Harbour is a pretty busy spot all summer, but you know in the winter time, the spring and the fall, it's a little quieter. So it's nice to kind of go to these places, you know, before the season starts and get get some entertainment out and, you know, kind of, you know, get ourselves out, you know. I mean, this time of year, we're not generally on tour like we are in the middle of the summer and like in the, you know, the early fall or late spring. So it's nice to be on the go this early in the year. And three stops in Labrador, which is of note. Then the standards uh, in Central, then all the way back to St. John's at the Bella Vista. And then it culminates, the end of the tour is at the Iceberg Alley Performance Tent. That's on Saturday, the 17th of June. I can't remember. I was trying to think if you'd played that tent before. Have you? We have. We, this will be our third time. Yeah, okay. And uh, we, we played the, 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 the year of the, 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 the hurricane was our first one. So our first experience wasn't actually in the tent. But uh, we we did it again last year, and uh, we're looking forward to it again this year. It's such a, a well put together event, and and the, the sound and the sonics of of the tent are are un, unbeatable. And uh, it's nice to be again to be invited to be a part of it. It's, it's a thrill. Yeah, now I'm not. It's not for me to promote uh, that particular festival, but even the venue alone is worth the price of admission because you're right. The sounds and the lights and what Bashaw and John have done is really extraordinary. It is, and it's it, you know uh, we we we've, we've had the fortune of touring around you know in other places. So um, I, I, you, you see the same thing in France, for example. Uh, we were in France uh, about ten years ago, and we played in a tent over there with six thousand people in it. And it's a tent that they go around the whole country, and they put it up in different towns or different venues. We just happened to be at the. <clears throat> Festival de Celtic, the Inter Celtic which is a, a big, one of the biggest Celtic festivals in the world. But this tent that we played in, they moved it from one place to the other. And, you know, so this is even before, you know, Iceberg Alley even started. And so I guess, you know, John or someone was around and seen, seen this kind of idea. I mean, it's, it's you know, it'd be nice to they could find other, other use for that tent and said that's just one weekend of the year, you know, maybe there's other opportunity because we know what it's like in Newfoundland for our weather. Could, we could certainly use a, that kind of a venue even if they moved it to the central or moved it to the west coast it'd be cool to see see that happen 100 percent. so what's the best way to get tickets just go to the website yeah on our website and uh you know like we're doing the art center so the, the arts and culture center you should buy us through their website and uh you get to our website we have links to where, where you can buy them absolutely the, the, the navigators.com appreciate this safe travels and break a leg thank you so much patty and, and uh, good morning to your listeners thank you same to you thanks arthur bye-bye bye-bye yeah, uh, some music in that family, needless to say. Of course, you'll all know that Arthur O'Brien's brother is Con O'Brien. My old buddy, Con, of course, frontman for the Irish descendants. Okay, so you know, someone is saying, you know, the testimony in front of the parliamentary committee from the big executives at the big three grocery uh, chain operators. And, you know, the thought was that it's easy enough for Galen Weston or anybody else to say that the margins are what they are. The margins are what they were last year. Nothing really has changed except for a big uptick in volume. Well, their revenue and profits are revenues way up and profitability is up as well. So exactly what the margins are and how they are or are not manipulated, you have to think in a publicly traded company that when audits are done by formal and professional auditors because these shareholders would like to see the numbers, of course, when we talk about value perceived or otherwise. So, I mean, it's not for me to say that Galen Weston is uh, 100% honest with his testimony in front of Parliament or anywhere else. 
but yeah we really have to come up with some ideas to understand about food inflation and exactly what's going on the unfortunate reality is we cannot trust politicians necessarily to break it down in bite-sized morsels, all the contributing factors, and then the end result of that would be trying to come up with some solutions. No question, the expanded control of the supply chain domestically is obviously part of this. Of course it is. Because if we import as much as we do, and of course a lot of our agricultural products are exported as well, big markets around the world, but more controls here so that you don't have to deal with currency exchange rates. You don't have to deal with the additional cost of transportation. So, yes, it's got to be part of it. And we mentioned yesterday a story regarding the shortage of workers in agriculture. They're forecasting there's going to be some 30,000 needed over the course of the next number of years. That story went on to talk about the fact that many workers who they can't find workers here, they bring in temporary foreign workers. But then, of course, with the trend that's growing year over year about greenhouse operations, maybe it's not a temporary foreign worker any longer because they actually targeted skilled immigrants who have backgrounds in agriculture as the part of the workforce so yeah it's a wonder to me that we haven't seen more and more conversation and more and more greenhouses and the adaptation of hydroponics for food production here in the province and certainly right around the country for context the hydroponic industry in the united states is already worth almost 10 billion dollars here peanuts let's take a break don't go away Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Uh, yeah, I'm just calling. Uh, I wonder should all government workers be tested for illegal drugs? First one. Second one is for all those onshore fishermen, if the price stays at the price it is, they will not get no unemployment. Thank you, Patty. You got my number if you want to call. Uh, okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. So that's certainly one of the implications here is if you don't fish, now there's going to be opportunity to make up some more weeks in other executing other species, but that's an interesting one. When it comes to drug testing for government workers, I don't know. We don't get drug tested here either, so I'm not sure what the implication will be. And, you know, there's a conversation we had about drugs in this country. Mike just dropped out. Can we get Mike back here, David? Uh, there's a conversation to be had about drugs in the country, which I know the country is not necessarily really ready for, given the fact that some people in some corners still haven't gotten over the fact that we saw cannabis legalized and cannabis products. And you know what's happening in British Columbia, which gets a lot of attention and a lot of negative pushback, is the decriminalization of possession of very small amounts, two and a half grams or less, of other much more dangerous illicit drugs and the numbers of safe injection sites that they have. So that's controversial. And seeing how it could or should work is going to be interesting to follow along. And I know that this, you know, people say that that's all about enabling someone to use drugs. But the fact of the matter is drug users are going to use no matter what. Right. So decriminalizing, it seems to have worked and legalization seems to have worked inside the marijuana world. You know, we haven't seen a big surge in the number of Canadians using. In fact, the, the, the age demographic that's seen the largest uptick in usage are seniors, which is remarkable. So anyway, let's keep rolling here. Line number one, Mike, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, good morning. Morning to you. Uh, Patty, I, I actually called about the fishery, but I heard your remarks about the shortage of workers, and I can't help but mention uh, that in the last couple of years, the St. John's Board of Trade undertook a study 
uh, on the availability of older workers in the workforce. And do you know there was something, I, I, I stand to be corrected on the amount, but there's somewhere like 45,000 older workers. Now, that's both retirees and non-retirees who, who would accept work under the right circumstances. 45,000. Um, and uh, there were a number of barriers, you know, for them not going back and, uh, and this type of thing. That's a topic for another day. But uh, we're all getting older out here. Most of this population is getting older. And up to now, there's been very little uh, focus uh, p- uh, placed on uh, on the aging workforce and older workforce and keeping them in there and keeping getting people back by, by the government. Anyway, uh, I, I'm going to go on to... I'm, I'm sorry, Patty, I cut you off. You were going to say... I was just going to say the specific labour shortage, uh, some of the specific labour shortages that we're talking about would be in uh, trades, you know, for construction, for instance, and in agriculture, as I mentioned in that story. So I wonder how many aged workers, retirees would be interested in those sort of very physically demanding jobs but there's no question and we talk about ageism and the opportunity for people to get back to work and possibly the need for people to get back to work to try to make ends meet. Yeah, they may be. You're absolutely right. Uh, retraining is an issue for for some people, but uh, the skills that they're you know they're highly skilled, they're very experienced, they show up, they're good mentors. They're not interested at this phase in their life in keeping young people down. They're more interested in helping young people grow and in the companies and everything else. So there are considerations, but there are a lot of people out there as they age who are available for work. And uh, I, I, I hope the Board of Trade continues on with the work that it started on this. Fair enough. Um, Patty, I, uh, I want to talk about the, uh, the current crisis. There is always a crisis, it seems, but the current crisis in the fishing industry about crap. Now, unfortunately, I wasn't able to hear all of your program this morning, so you probably have had calls on this. They may even answer things that I'm going to comment on. But there seems to be a push by the union, or I may have misunderstood that, uh, yesterday for government to step in on the price of crab. Did I understand that correct, Patty, from what you've had on your program? Yeah, well, a couple of things. I think what they want is the government to play some role in encouraging both sides to get back to the table to come up with a more manageable price that both sides can live with. Because even the price-setting panel itself said that's not this is not the right price. So that just speaks to a flaw in it. So in addition to encouraging uh, both sides to get back, they think they need some attention too, and I think they're right, just at how we establish the price per pound. Because the panel system doesn't seem to be working for either side at this point, so back to the drawing board. Then there's also mention of potentially some federal government support, much like they, what they would have done for farmers in the past, whether it be because of extended droughts or flooding or what have you, and giving them some financial supports. So there are the basics of uh, government interaction that they're talking about. Yeah, and uh, and if the things come to pass as they appear to be today, anyway, that uh, you know these prices are, are devastated as they are, and maybe uh, uh, there is going to be one hell of an impact down the line. You've probably mentioned that, I guess, yourself. All through the industry, it's gone down from well, somewhere around seven, eight, nine hundred million down to around two or three, I think, somewhere like that. That's a lot of cash to leave on the table. Penny, what gets me a little bit about this? First of all, I wouldn't like to be the person from government calling a plant owner and telling them they got to pay more money when some of these are just hanging on because they have inventories from last year. Uh, no way that's going to happen. I still can't understand why we're at this stage of depending on this type of uh, three-people price-setting panel. 
I, I, I can't see the value in it. It's like a couple of years ago, uh, they, and I mean the industry, I mean the seafood producers and the union, and I believe some offshoots of government, uh, tried a pilot project for fish auctions. Now, fish auctions are in use around the world, Patty. This is nothing new. They're in use in Nova Scotia, they're in use all through the Scandinavian countries, and they're highly successful. But it was a half-assed, you know, nobody really wanted to succeed pilot project that took place here a couple of years ago. You know, and can you imagine what it would be like if we had a competitive system for people bidding for these things? I just say that it might uh, stimulate the market to be more friendly. And why is it that we're here today dealing with this? I mean, surely somebody in marketing or marketing support could looked at could have looked at this. I think the, the companies have been saying it for months, Patty. Surely they could have anticipated this and had something in place that, in the event it happened, you're not tucked away in a drawer someplace. In the highly unlikely event that the crab price collapses and goes from peace to famine, that there's a plan, something in place. And they're not all standing around looking at their belly buttons. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we nudge up too close to the beginning of the fishery for whatever species for, for final decisions, whether it be on total allowable catch, individual quotas, price per pound, and all the rest of those uh, targets that have to be dealt with. I don't know how the price gets set appropriately. So there are companies in this world that are actual experts in evaluating markets and market pressures and what the market can bear. Maybe some sort of professional entity takes it on because there is, you know, there's got to be a better way than this. Exactly what it is, I don't know. But at one point you mentioned that some of the uh, the viability of some processors is not as strong as some of the other big ones. But then at the same time, the thought of an auction at the wharf, for instance, if I catch a tuna here, it goes to an auction in Japan. By and large. And, of course, then I'll get top dollar for the product. I yeah. wonder what we yeah. would do to the processing sector if we opened it up to a buyer from Brazil, England, Scotland, Germany, France, Japan, Russia, wherever, South American representatives at the wharf. What that would mean for our processors. It, probably not a good thing, but some better model to ensure that the raw material gets a fairer value than it seems to at this moment. You Look what they get, let's say, for instance, in the cod last year. Less than a buck. What do you think you pay for it at the grocery store? An awful lot more than that. So the raw material really does get the short end of it, as far as I can see. Well, I, Patty, back in the 80s, I was the director of marketing support services for the provincial department of fisheries. The mantra in those days was not to do anything to interfere with the processors. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Stay out of the way because the first thing the processor will call up government and say, "Hey, if you do anything to fool up what what I'm doing out here, I'm going to shut. I'm going to tell all my workers I'm going to shut down. I'm going to blame it on you, Mr. Politician." That's exactly, and that's still going on today. The provincial department of fisheries is a lean duck. It has no interest in taking a lead in this. It should, in my opinion, it should get out there. You mentioned about what's going to happen. Would Japan buy these products? Probably for the first year, but I assure you, in the second year, you'll have people from the northern peninsula, people from the southwest coast, people from the southern uh, uh, coast, uh, people from other areas in Newfoundland and Labrador out there buying for their plants. 
You're going to see them there, too. And it won't be under wharf petty. These things take place in a hail at sea. You, you get to know these harvesters as professionals. You know the quality they're going to deliver to you. So even before they leave the fishing grounds, the money is in their bank account or part of it is. I'd highly encourage them to look at it. Uh, anyway, Patty, it's sort of beaten it to death and the dead horse to death, a terrible way to put it. Uh, but every year, a year on year, so they're all siloed. You know, the union is siloed. The AS Association of Seafood Producers are siloed. The province is siloed. The province, if, if they can do it at all, will push it to the feds. The feds said we have nothing to do. They're all in silos, and they're all looking after their interests. There's nobody looking after the interests that I can see right now, unless it's some kind of an emergency situation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, somebody may call Seamus and say, Seamus, you're a minister up there. We need some uh, money to make up the stamps to pay our people. He might be brought in at the 13th hour. But there's really nobody here pushing for this. There's nobody putting any pressure on them at all. It's an embarrassment, the lack of professionalism these people in this industry show. We got Northern Cobb coming up, Patty, in a in a couple of months. It's going to be interesting because then this year, Aboriginal people have a right to 20% of the allocation that's going to go out there. Uh, they're trying to push it up from 13,000 tons up to, I think, 26 or 27 or something, the union is, something like that. And uh, the processors, 17 or 18. But the processors are already up there making deals with the Aboriginal groups who harvest it with their offshore vessels. And these vessels are crewed by people from the Caribbean everywhere. I appreciate the time this morning, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Uh, very quickly before we get to the news, let's go to line number four. Debbie, you're on the air. Hi there. I just want to let people know that we're traveling on the Trans-Canada. We just passed Gushu's Pond Park uh, about 10 minutes ago. Um, we saw a little white dog, something like a Bichon Frise or a, a little white poodle, pure white, uh, with a red sweater on, running towards us on the Trans-Canada. Um, we tried to catch him. He ran in through the old emergency exit to Gushu's Pond Park, and we weren't able to catch him. So if anybody's missing their little puppy, that's where you might find them today in Guju's Pond Park. Well, hopefully the puppy stays in the park and off the highway until the owners can go retrieve it. Yes, it was a couple of us stopped and tried to get him. He actually ran across the street before we uh, before we had come along, uh, but he was on uh, he was on our side. Obviously, we were traveling towards St. John's when we first saw him. Yeah. So he's uh, he's pretty fast. He's only about 15 pounds, I would say, but he's gone in through the park. Appreciate this. Uh, fingers crossed that the owner gets the dog before anything goes wrong. Thank you, Debbie. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here we go. Thanks for that, Debbie. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, lots of time for you. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the program. Well, Jack Hurley was a tremendous athlete, specifically in basketball and baseball, and he was an awesome coach. He's in the Tennis Hall of Fame for his exploits as a builder of the sport of tennis. So after he retired teaching from Gonzaga High School, he taught at Greenbelt Tennis Club as well as out in Central in Gander. Now there's going to be a, memor- a memorial tennis tournament remembering the contributions of Jack Hurley, and the organizer of this tournament joins us on line number two. That's Declan Walsh. Good morning, Declan. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How you doing? Excellent. How about you? I'm doing very well, thanks. Uh, listen, good on you for doing this. There's no one more deserving than having a tennis tournament in his memory than Jack Hurley. Talk about your relationship with Jack as a coach. Absolutely. So uh, Jack was, uh, I had many coaches over the years, but Jack was one of my first when I was about eight, and uh, he, he was an inspiration 
to me. He he, uh, he encouraged me to just strive for great things, but at the same time, always keep a great smile on my face while I was playing. Well, it's easy to have a smile on your face when you're dealing with Jack Hurley. It's just he oozes <laughs> positivity, you know, whether Absolutely. it be in, in for, the form of encouragement or even just his general overall attitude, a positive person, and it rubbed off on everybody. Oh, it did, yep. So he, uh, he was an inspiration to many people. He... Uh, he taught uh, junior and adult programs, but uh, and everyone everyone who came in contact with him, uh, everyone, everybody loved him, and everyone loved the game of tennis almost immediately. So he was he was a very big inspiration. We we just wanted to uh, make this tournament in his honor. I knew Jack a little bit, and he had the not only the positive attitude, but a bit of the throwback flair for the way he wanted people to play tennis. You know, <laughs> he wasn't a chip and charge kind of guy. He was behind the baseline, work on yeah. your ground strokes. The rest comes. That's right. That is correct. Yeah. Uh, awesome guy. So, what's the tournament going to look like, and when is it? So the tournament uh, it's going to run from uh, April twenty first to twenty third. So this Friday through Sunday, uh, there's going to be men's and women's singles and doubles categories, along with a uh, mixed doubles. And uh, if you're a competitive player, if you're a rec player, there's uh, there's different levels of play. So uh, it's it's a tournament for everyone, really. How old are you these days, Declan? Are you fifteen? 15, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about you as a tennis player. You're a Canada Games athlete. You're the youngest tennis player to ever win the provincial men's title. Uh, you've yeah. been, uh, you're an Atlantic Canadian champion for your age group. So how's the tennis this year? What do you got your sights set on yourself? So uh, I just finished the winter season. So I just came back from uh, under 16 and under 18 nationals. And so uh, I get a bit of a break now. So for a couple, a couple of weeks maybe, and then I'll get back out on court and start training for the summer season. So that'll start in uh, July or so. And just give folks uh, some of the age references here. Declan won the provincial men's title when he was 12 years old, which <laughs> is extraordinary, to be honest. When you look around the world of Canadian tennis, I think we're a real heyday for Canadian tennis. On the women's side, of course, we've got major champions. And on the men's side, who are some of your faves? Is it Felix? Is it Shapovalov? Who do you like? I'm uh, yeah I do li- I like Felix a lot and there's uh, the new guy from Spain that's coming up is Carlos Alcaraz and uh, I like to watch him quite a bit but uh, him and Felix are probably two of my favorite players on the tour I'd say right now is Alcaraz still out number one he's uh, he's dropped to number two right now but he's just uh, he's just a little behind Djokovic so I'm, ho- I'm hoping he catches up to him and gets back to that number one spot yeah and of course uh, Alcaraz became the youngest player ever to be number one in the world he's got a wicked future ahead of him and there's no shame oh, yeah. in being behind uh, world number one Djokovic one of the <laughs> finest players of all time needless to say yeah and it's good to have you on the show so where what can folks just go over and have a look at some of the tennis or what do you need people to know uh, yep. So if you uh, if you're interested in uh, signing up for the tournament, uh, I can give up the number here if you'd like. Sure. Uh, so the number to Greenbelt Tennis Club is seven zero nine seven two two three eight four zero. Congratulations on taking this on. Jack would be as pleased as punch. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he would. I'm sure he'd. Uh, I'm sure he'd find some time to play it himself if he was here. Good luck and have fun with the tournament, and good luck in your competitive season, Declan. Thanks so much, Patty. Take good care of yourself. All right, bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, what a player. I mean, 12 years old, <laughs> the provincial men's champion. That's really quite something, isn't it? All right, let's go to line number three. Glenn, you're on the air. Hello, can Glenn. You Hello there. Yes, you hear me, Patty? I can hear you pretty good. Go right ahead, sir. Okay, I'm here on speakerphone. I didn't know uh, if it was coming in clear enough or not. No, well, I'm, if you can not. take us off speaker, that would be even better. I got you on speaker now. If you can take us off speaker, that would be great. Okay. okay. Well, I'm, the, I'm, I'm Glenn Winslow, the Harvester, yes, you know, that uh, 
stated that these minimum proce- processing rules are killing all local and the And uh, I just called in to let you know the reason why. Go ahead. Uh, in the last few years, Patty, we've we've noticed that uh, uh, every year there's less and less processing companies. So what's happening is actually the money that you know the industry should be getting spread around is uh, being used to buy up companies and closing them up and in communities and putting them out of business. And like last year, we had weeks on end that were uh, that you know boats were tied on two weeks, some size three weeks, waiting to get out and. Even smaller boats were told that they could only go uh, uh, once a week and they were allowed a certain amount, like a couple of thousand pounds. And a lot of times there was days that, uh, I mean, it was too windy and they couldn't go in, and, and like Mr. Turn. So his effort causing a real problem for, for the harvesting sector and and uh, and, uh, and even the processing sector, sector because we, we, we just haven't got the capacity no more to do it. And, and then you get into other species like cod. Like last year, we had uh, actually the, the quotas on cod last year. The, the weekly limits were doubled. But a lot of the plants could only buy half the amount because right. there's not processing to do that either. Yeah. I suppose that's why there's trip limits in place, so that you can indeed find a buyer when you steam home. Exactly. And and uh, like right now, you got to remember what's after happening in this industry. Over the last three years, the resource is after becoming very strong, I mean, we, we, which is a good thing. And we've got a good resource, there's no doubt about it. But you can't double the resource and, and, and have less plants and the same amount of time to process it. It don't work. Like like something has has got to change here. And whether it's more processing facilities, whether it's outside buyers, or whether it's uh, uh, a longer season. Like, you know, something has got to change. You can't keep bumping up the quota and, and, and saying to uh, everyone, oh, geez, we're, we're not going to give you no more time to catch it because at the end of the day, you know what starts to suffer then? Quality issues. And then our product going into the market, our buyers and, and the people that are eating this product starts to notice the quality issues with our product. So, you know, like it's after causing a big problem and we've told them about it, but it, it just seems like no one's listening. And the only way to find additional uh, processing capacity is if you steam across the Gulf and sell it somewhere else. Well, like right now, Patty, it's not the fact that anyone wants to bring anything across the Gulf. That's that's not the issue here. Like, uh, I have no interest in bringing money across the Gulf. I, I I'm very proud to say that the plant that I lines to, I've I've uh, uh, developed a good relationship with the people that works there. I'm very proud to say that I support that community and and uh, and I'll continue to do that. But it's not fair that a group of companies on this island can go anywhere in Atlantic Canada and Quebec buy as much as they want, bring it to Newfoundland and process it, and no one's allowed to keep compete with them in Newfoundland. We got Labrador fishermen, like I said yesterday, that fishes off Newfoundland and are not allowed to land to a Newfoundland company. That is just something there's something wrong with that picture and all I'm saying is is time for it to be addressed in this province. Fair enough. And there's another couple of issues that I always scratch my head about is, you know, trip limits is one thing, but the inability for the body up system and how we deal with bycatch. You add all of these things into the conversation and it's just such convoluted industry that I can never really figure it out. No, that's right. And, and, and you know, like <clears throat> these, these issues seems like they've just talked about, Patty. We talks about them in, in, in meetings in the winter months, but it, they're not acted on. Like we asked this year, the, the large supplementary and full-time committee 
SDFO to extend the season for at least one month because we recognised that we cannot harvest the amount that we got to harvest in the time frame that we got now. And, you know, like, they came back and said, like, they recognised it in the meetings with us. said, you know, geez, we understand where you're coming from, that, that you can't t- continue to catch more in the same amount of time. But when, when the management plan came out, they never changed the date. The closing date was still July 31st. And, like, we're astonished at that to say, my God, man, like, I mean, this boat that I fish is right now, Daddy, I never, I built that in 2001. The first day I went crabbing, that was August the 7th, and I had no trouble catching my crab August the 7th. We're still fishing in the same areas, but for some reason, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans chooses to shut down fishery July 31st, and we can't understand this. There's a lot of stuff I can't understand in your industry, I have to say, Glenn. Anything else you want to say before I take a break here this morning, sir? No, I'm just good. I just want to explain to you why, why I made the statement right yesterday that... Uh, that these roles are killing our local land and, and killing our crab fishery. And, uh, you know, someone got to start to deal with. I appreciate the time, Glenn. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. When we come back, we're going to get an update on the most licenses out in Area 2742 from Brian. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Morning, Brian. You're on the air. Good morning, Fatty. How are you? Best kind. How you doing? Good. Beautiful day here, buddy. That's Good. Central. Glad to hear uh, it. I'm just giving a quick update. Uh, you are a man of your word. I, I listened to your show last week. You did have the minister on and uh, asked some questions about uh, the moose cuts and allegations for the, the province. Yep. Uh, the, since I've been on your show, I did get contact from uh, Minister Hagee's office. And he's away, unfortunately, for a few days. He's back when the house opens up. But I am getting a meeting with him, with uh, Representative with myself, uh, as soon as he gets time when the house closes down for a short period of time. I've been in the conversation, uh, conversation with uh, Minister, uh, MHA Parrott, and that's been ongoing. And I did get a phone call from Minister Bragg's office. I don't know if I'm saying this correctly. Executive assistant, if that's not the right term, I apologize. Uh, we spoke for about a half hour or so, and as you said on your show, I'm a bit passionate about this issue. And uh, at the end of the conversation, about a half hour or so, they, she informed me that I wasn't going to get a meeting with the minister and that uh, they understood my side on this there and that it wasn't necessary and they weren't reversing their decision. Sure, just let, let's give people an idea exactly what we're talking about. So Brian called last week to talk about his disappointment or frustration with the fact that the only decrease they've seen in licenses in his moose management area were for the local hunters. No right. decrease for out-of-province licenses, no decrease for the outfitters. They feel like one and the same, but some people here locally do indeed use an outfitter for whatever reason. So the only decrease we saw was for the local hunter, which is obviously probably whether we talk about the price of food, and it's not just a hobby for so many hunters. They go out and they hunt the moose to feed themselves and their families or their friends. So they're, just so people know what we're talking about. Okay. So, so Patty, uh, uh, when Mr. The Mr. Bragg was on, uh, I spoke to the biologist there about two weeks ago. He sent me the data of the, the, the moose study that was done in Area 42 and 27. Minister Bragg said, uh, he said on your show that they'd done a study in 20. 20 and 42 and 27 and they go by the scientific data and that's all he said and he didn't get into no details so uh, I just want to let your audience know because a lot of people are asking me and this is the heart of our our complaint I guess you call it that uh, in 2020 the aerial study and in, in 42 it showed 463 animals approximately with an aerial study that was done in the winter because that's when they do it it's easier to see the moose uh, 
463 in Gamble, and there was 1,434 in Area 27. And as I said before, this area is divided by a river, same as St. John's and Mount Pearl with Streetlight. Yeah. And Gamble's also bounded on the west side by Glenwood by River. So, Patty, on my Facebook page and on my petition, I said, we feel that the information is not accurate uh, in going forward. And someone has said to me, you better have good proof. And here's, this is my reasoning, okay? So they done the study in 2020, okay, in the winter. Uh, I think it was the middle of March, we had our first COVID case. And then we had the, I don't know the exact numbers now, Patty, but we had an outbreak at Carl's funeral home. And all of a sudden, the world changed, our province changed. And time we got into mid-fall, COVID was everywhere. We had Eastern, Central, Western, we divided up in zones. Now, I'm not saying it impacted the entire hunt in 2020, but I say it impacts the hunt by 10% because you're put into a bubble. You had to pick so many people, and the seniors couldn't go in the woods with their neighbor and this one, this one, because they weren't in their bubble, okay? So in 2021, our province shut down. You could not come into our province. You couldn't go into a hospital, sit by the side of the bed. You got, you got all the, the hard stories to do on your show, people dying and couldn't be with their families in the hospitals. So the outfitters, like a lot of those, loss of fortune in 2021. You spoke about the new money coming into the province. Well, 2021... Non-residents weren't allowed to come into the province because of the restrictions. Rotational workers had to come home, isolate for two weeks at the beginning, and then a week home with the family, go away, isolate two weeks, come home. So you weren't allowed to come into the province. So the outfitters, like I said, lots of fortune. Now, Patty, in Area 42 and 27, I complained about the high presence of non-resident licenses in our area. So they take 88% of their animals. Those animals never got harvested in 2021. The, the moose hunt for even the residents, you had to pick somebody that was in your bubble to up the road. The meat shop was closed. You couldn't get a haircut. You couldn't get a dog room. You couldn't go to church. And non-residents couldn't come into the province. So the harvest for the moose in 2021 was not normal. It was basically like a mini moratorium. So in the fall of last year, 2022, was the first fall with any, restric- any restrictions. We're seeing, as locals, all kinds of yearlings and second-year moose, four-point bulls. Like, there's like a mini-explosion of the moose population. So by doing a study in 2020, unfortunately, uh, 2020 and 2021 was not normal years. If the moose never got harvested, the animals had to multiply. And we're saying that... This aerial study done by biologists, I respect them. Listen, you don't become a biologist by sitting on your hands. I mean, they're smart people. But if they want to go by scientific data, I mean, there was basically no hunt for a large majority of people in 2021 because you weren't permitted to. St. John's, uh, uh, half a gamble pond, cabin owners are from out east. They wouldn't be allowed to come out to a cabin because they're in zone three. We're in zone two based on the health restrictions at the time. So the hunt didn't take place. So those numbers are not accurate. And we're saying that it should be revisited before they cut, because if they cut another 50 licenses in Gamble, that would be 150 in the last seven years, and Terranova would be over 100. They're taking 256 animals out of the system. That's not accurate. Okay? okay. That's the point that I wanted to put out there. And the other point, you, you asked... After the minister hung up, you made a statement, Patty, and I'm so glad you made it. You said, I guess the bottom line is, is the, is the, is the numbers of the animals there? 
And I started digging. I went back to 2011, 2012, Minister Terry French. He was the minister. The gamble area had a 68% success rate. Oh, sorry. Terra Nova had a 68% success rate, 27. Gamble had 80%. Now, the Wall Lake done another cut in 2015. Terra Nova had 67.43% success rate. Gamble had 58% success rate. In 2021, Gamble had 53-point success rate with 100 animals caught. And area 27 went down to 50. But like I said... The Forsham took it all the bridges. 60% of the hunting area for residents was not available for them. They couldn't cross the rivers. So, Patty, that shows the last 12 years, the moose management plan that's in our area, even with the 200 animals caught, we're maintaining a 53% to low 60s, which shows a healthy harvest for non-residents and the residents. So that's why I'm saying that this is not accurate. And that, that's my point. Like, they're doing that scientific information. And, like, Patty, I put out a, I put out a petition shortly after I spoke to the, the biologist. I put it out. It was out for nine days. And, and Gam was probably telling you that's where I live. And it's out in Eastport, Globerdown area, here Bay, Dover. I got 860 signatures. 860. And that's not counting the phone calls and the emails. Of people upset once this address. They feel that the data for 2022, because I made it public to them, is not accurate going into the fall of 2023. And I'm glad you asked that question because you said to me there was areas on the East Coast that was 50-something percent down to 36, down to 31. Well, that's not happening here in Central. That's not happening in Gamble area. And where we got such a high presence of outfitters, those animals never got harvested. If they did, it was illegal. They couldn't come into the province. And someone in St. John's couldn't come out to Crown Ridge and hunt moose if you weren't allowed to come out to the district. You couldn't go to the hospital to visit your loved one who was passing away. Right. So, <laughs> so the moose hunt did not take place. So that data is not accurate. And we feel that it, it, it should be redone, and these cuts should not take place until another study is done, whether it's next year or the year after. It's not fair <clears> to the resident. Yeah, because not every MMA is created equal with the same number of animals. We know that to be true. And I, maybe success rate is a helpful metric, but maybe not the be-all and end-all. But I totally get your point, Brian. You've had the last word. We're just up to 12 o'clock noon. Thanks for the update this morning. And thank you so much for having me, Spenny. Happy you have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, there we go. Brian was indeed the last caller of the day. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.